name is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I am Jean Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, the internet's premier pro-the-tunnel, pro-journalistical podcast where we stick to the list for better or worse. This week we are still staying in the sort of realms of horror, but something a little more Spielberg-y. A little bit harsher than Spielberg, though. Uh, We, of course, are talking about Super 8, directed by J.J. Abrams. Yeah, forgot for a second. I should have remembered because it's full of lens flare. Yeah, any of you who had just, like, not called attention to it, the truncate silence thing would have cut out your pause and no one would have been the riser, but now all of the audience can share in your mistake. I am honest. (laughs) It is a fault with me. Uh, But before we get into that, we'll talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? Well, we've all been to see a movie together. We all went and saw Asteroid City, the latest film by Wes Anderson, like so many others of Wes Anderson's movies. This is an absurdist dramedy, and it is about numerous characters who converge on the small desert town of Asteroid City, where their personalities and eccentricities collide under unusual circumstances. It focuses mostly on the Steenbeck family, which is uh, grieving a loss um, particularly the father of that family, Orgy, played by Jason Schwartzman, and the son, Woodrow, played by Jake Ryan. And uh, it is told also, this whole movie, through a framing device of the same actors playing... Basically, the movie that we're seeing at Asteroid City is a fictional production put on by actors that you see in the framing device. It's a whole thing. And it's but... also the framing device outside of that is Brian Cranston as speaking a, about it yes, as like a this is a fictional or... narrative around yeah. the creation of the inside of the fiction, fictional asteroid city. Yes. It's complicated. So <laughs> if everyone's following, that's three different levels. Um, I think you probably only, for the purposes at least of this discussion, we probably only need to pay attention to the the bottom two. I don't think Brian Cranston enters much into it, but uh, why don't you guys start us off? Uh, John, what did you think of this movie? I'm a big fan of Wes Anderson. I love... I was about to say Wes Craven for a second there. That would be a bit of a spin out. But no, I love Wes Anderson's movies. I've watched so many of them and I've enjoyed all of them. This is very Wes Anderson too. It very much keeps with his idiosyncratic characters, the really interesting framing of scenes, and it's very much talking about, you know, media, about stories, about how we grieve through stories, and how we try to use stories to, you know, create some kind of meaning, and how we try to create some kind of relationship with the unknown and the unknowable. In that sense, I think it's really successful, and when it does focus on these really interesting characters, that's where it can really shine. I know that you guys probably saw a few moments where I sort of just started clapping to myself, because I love whenever characters go on little monologues in Wes Anderson stuff, and you get some really great ones here. And this is an absolutely, enormously stacked cast. Jason Schwartzman, Scarlett Johansson, Tom Hanks, Jeffrey Wright... Brian Cranston, like we said earlier, Edward Norton, Jake Ryan, Maya Hawke, Rupert Friend, Liev Schreiber, Sophia Lillis, uh, other people who are lower on the cast list for some strange reason, Steve Carell. Yeah, there's just so many 
uh, Tony Revolori by Balaban. Yeah. Tilda Swinton. You're reading it in um, list of appearance. Yeah. It's just absolutely packed, and they give so many of these actors so much good stuff to work with. So I really, really enjoyed this, and it's very clear that the idea of quarantine, the idea of being stuck in a place with no escape, has been playing on Wes Anderson's mind, as this is his first thing that he's written since the, you know, coronavirus issue, the pandemic. Yes, that's what it's called. And it seems like all of this stuff is coalescing on into this movie, and I just really enjoyed it. Uh, so for me, I am also a pretty big fan of Wes Anderson's work. We've covered two of his movies as deep dives thus far, and we'll probably do one when we get to uh, Grand Budapest. Uh, I'm going to say something you might not like. I think I'm getting a real sense of diminishing returns. It's really well done. It's got fantastic cast, fantastic script, uh, fantastic staging, but I can't help but feel that Wes Anderson is treading water, that I have seen so many Wes Anderson films recently that are all doing the same tricks, and it is absurd of me to expect him to change up his style every time, but I don't know, it felt like he was playing the hits a bit. That's not to say it was bad, it was really, really well done. Um, cast's really strong. I would love to see Tony Revolori get a more prominent role in his next film, because I quite like what he was able to do in Grand Budapest and what he's able to do here. I like the continued use of Jeffrey Wright. Um, I thought he was really strong in French Dispatch, and he's really funny here with the first sort of monologue he gets given. Um, I got a real kick out of that. But he also gets some newcomers. Mile Hawk uh, is kind of like built for this kind of project. Um, I'm surprised she didn't show up in... Uh, French Dispatch. Uh, but Tom again, Hanks. like, a great deal of returning cast. You know, you get uh, Bill Murray, Jason Schwartzman. No, you don't get Bill Murray. Bill Murray's not in this. The, f- the father, the grandfather. That's Tom Hanks. That's Tom Hanks. I thought yes. it was Bi- Sorry. Bloody hell. We, you sat through that whole movie thinking it was Bill Murray? Yes, I did. <laughs> what? Oh, my God. It was such a Bill Murray role. But it looks exactly like Tom Hanks. Um, Christ. We Where literally talked Tom about this. We talked about this when we got home after seeing the movie. I, I thought you were saying you and would I like... Said, so who I did thought you Tom Hanks you would was like... an interesting get for this. I thought you were saying you would like to see Tom Hanks in the next... No, I literally Anderson said thing. to you, it was cool how Tom Hanks was in this one. Christ. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I Have look. You, not you been can, paying attention you, to all right, the media you, you cannot. The movie. You can no longer criticize me for mistaking uh, the actress in um, in Death on the Nile because that is they are way more similar to each other than Tom Hanks and Bill Murray. Okay, <laughs> I was just. I guess I just transplanted Bill Murray's face onto the role look, because I can't blame you for it because he's like you know. There's got you. You would have thought there would be something in there, like a life contract or something at this point. Yeah. Um, actually, from what my understanding is that this was not as a result of the recent allegations against Bill Murray. These it was the it was a COVID thing. So uh, yeah. Bill he, Bill Murray was going to play the Steve Carell character and um, right. got sick with COVID, and it, the amount of time it would have taken him to isolate, um, they would have lost the schedule. So yeah. Steve Carell came in at the last minute. I guess the the grandfather role just felt like such a Bill Murray thing. 
Yeah, that you're I right. Of, I can't see it. Like I, I, I got confused. And I mean, Steve Carell is another one where inserting him into this movie, it just makes sense. But with Steve Carell, it's he's used precisely. He's not in too much. I love of it. how he's trying to shift those plots of land. <laughs> Just this, the way this, he describes them patches. is the way they desc- that he describes them is really really funny because it relates almost exactly to a pretty current fad that's been going on. Um, also useless. Uh, I love some of the stop motion that they use here. That's really really funny. It got a big chuckle out of Lawson. Yeah, when we were sitting there. Um. But again, it's like it's got the quirky kids kind of thing. Really, really smart kids doing some pretty, pretty dumb things. Um, but it does have that thread of grief going through it, both both sort of levels. And I think Schwartzman has to be my uh, MVP for this one. He's playing detached, but on the level above that, he's a lot more engaged, and his thoughts are a lot more complex. At that point. So that's really, really interesting what he's doing. It is, and I do- it is really interesting to watch the Wes Anderson filmography, the evolution of Jason Schwartzman yeah. as an actor. Because he starts out, like his first role pretty much is Rushmore, the yeah. shitty shitty little kid in Rushmore. And now just he's like punch. playing a grieving middle-aged father. Yeah, he's playing the kind of a Adrian Brody role. Adrian Brody's here too, and he's great as well. Um, well, he's playing a sort of similar energy to his character in Darjeeling Limited. This man that's who is true. grieving. That is true. Um, uh, he's, much, he's, how- he's much... Um, he's more somber of, in this, but... Yeah, he's, this uh, is much more of a serious role for yeah. him than I was expecting. But what really struck me was the way they introduced the concept of the framing. It brought to mind the artificiality... Of it in sort of a Brechtian sense, to use a theater term. And it got me thinking about the Asteroid City portion of it as metaphor. So that was really, really cool. Uh, I had a great time with it, but I do think that it's a lot of the hits. It's a lot of the same stuff that Anderson has done before. And sad to say, it just has diminishing returns. I liked French Dispatch quite a bit more. Um, I'm closer to uh, to John than I am to Harley on this one. I, I actually think I might be hotter on this movie than John is even, um, because this is my favourite Wes Anderson movie since The Grand Budapest Hotel. Uh, I, and Grand Budapest, I think we can I agree, agree with a masterpiece. You. Yeah. Grand Budapest Hotel is like peak Wes Anderson. Like, I mm. have a real soft spot for um, Rushmore. It's, like, mm. I haven't seen Moonrise Kingdom, but it would be for me probably... Budapest Hotel, Rushmore, then Asteroid City. Um, I admit that I find uh, Wes Anderson a lot more hit or miss um, than definitely than Jean does, maybe not than Harley does, but uh, it's been a while since one of his really hit for me. I enjoyed Isle of Dogs, but it didn't connect in the way that I like movies that are in a way that made me love it. It didn't connect, and uh, I I like the French Dispatch a lot. Um, but I didn't think it was up to par with some of his all-time greatest work. This, I think, does, for me, sit comfortably alongside that. And I think what makes the difference for me is, is how thematically rich this is. It's, it's, you've already talked about you know, grief, but it's also about artists' relationship with grief and using art as almost a sort of therapy, but also how the purpose of 
uncomfortable stories and unpleasant stories and sad stories and all of the sort of swirling miasma of artists' relationship to stories and audiences' relationship to stories. It's it's interesting. And I enjoy very much the sense of unreality that the Asteroid City portion of those three framing, framing devices have, those three stories have. It's very sort of painted backgrounds you're you're always aware that it's a show it's it's got that sort of we've talked about it before on the podcast that sort of wizard of oz effect where the backgrounds are so clearly not real Mm. um but that sort of is part of the aesthetic uh some of the effects are pretty intentionally dodgy in a way that Mm. i quite enjoy like you already talked about the stop motion um I think some of the compositing is unintentionally dodgy. Like there are a couple of little scenes. Uh, there's a scene with Hanks and the two kids, um, the two little girls that they seemed really badly composited into. And there's the scene where the first time you see Steve Carell when he's behind the desk, they just seemed very poorly integrated into the background. Like it was a pickup or something mm. and they didn't, get to rebuild the entire set they shot it on green screen uh that's what it looked like to me but um it it makes a brilliantly weird pivot midway through um that i think ties into the the broader themes and the broader emotions that the the story is contending with and and the framing story ties all into that as well i think that the framing story stuff is perhaps more obtuse than was necessary i mean it's there because wes anderson likes to play and he likes Mm. to do things in a way that isn't immediately just you know that idea of you know quickest path to the objective is not wes anderson's thing he He will go and zigzag all over the place get distracted by whatever catches his fancy and he'll get there eventually um that's anderson's compulsion and and i appreciate it um but i also thought it was really funny just in a less self-reflexive way than i have found some of his recent movies to be there is some silliness on occasion that i feel has sort of been there's there's i don't know there's a playfulness and a silliness that i felt to be missing from isle of dogs and the french dispatch like those were movies that were a little too buttoned up if that makes makes sense this feels a little looser and a little um more willing to just be just be a bit odd um which is a strange thing to say about a wes anderson film because they're all odd but this in particular it's a sliding scale there are moments where you're just like you know that's a really silly thing and he just did it because he felt like it the leave schreiber shit with the death ray yeah yeah that one of the kids spilled a death (laughs) ray or like there's just this I don't think this is a spoiler, but there's just this scene where Brian Cranston, just from from three stories up in this Inception level of stories, just sort of like accidentally wanders into the middle of a scene and then realizes he's not supposed to be there and leaves again. And it's like it's, it's got no impact on the plot whatsoever. It's just a scene <laughs> and, that's and interrupted. And there are these moments where it's almost as if the actors in the Asteroid City segments break character and just and start get talking to each other. Yeah, and but I like, find that interesting too. Yeah. But, like, you'd never would have seen the Brian Cranston thing in something like The French Dispatch. Like, no, that's no. what I mean by this being a little looser and a little more silly. Um, but Dispatch also had the, the sort of multiple layers thing as well. It did, yeah. But it well, was I a mean, more so formal. Budapest. It, I don't know how, hmm. how to put it. It felt more formal. Um, yeah, obviously. It was, like, I mean, structured like an issue yeah. of The French Dispatch, Whereas while this, this one's a bit more like a stage around. play. 
Whereas this is what, like, I found the Isle... I think what I'm getting down to in the end is that Isle of Dogs and the French Dispatch seemed like formal exercises of a story that he had the idea of and he wanted to tell in a very specific way. Whereas here, it felt to me more like he had something he wanted to say, if that mm. makes sense as a, as a distinction. It was yeah. less about forming a cultivated story that was built from the ground up to be perfect and to have no round edges, to be just sharp, and more about wanting to say something that was perhaps a little bit complicated, a little bit conflicted, something that he felt inside that he was willing to allow to put out there in a way that was less um, less carefully constructed than he has mm. been recently. I, I think that's what I'm getting at here. Um, but the writing is just generally excellent. Um and uh, I mean, you've already talked about the cast. Um, Sportsman, uh, I think, is is really strong. I think Scarlett Johansson is really mm-hmm. strong. Obviously, Tom Hanks was so good. Harley couldn't even tell it was Tom Hanks. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, transformative, man. Transformative. Someone, someone that really stood out to me that I don't think either of you have mentioned in any great detail was Edward Norton. Um, he did yes. do a good job. Yeah, he's he's doing such a sort of like tonally different performance. Well, to me, I find it hard to remark upon him because he's consistently really, really good. Um, I mean, if you look at it, it's the exact opposite character from Glass Onion. Yeah. But we were also, talking like, about... It's also a categorically different to, than Birdman. But we were talking when we left about the relationship between the framing story and mm. the theme of grief and we were we were all talking it through i don't think we'd really come up with an idea but um a concrete one but i i was thinking through it afterwards and i think that that character is actually really crucial in a way that Mm. you know i'd like to have a conversation with you um that obviously we're not going to get into here because it'd be full of spoilers but um i think it's actually a really delicately constructed thing and Mm. um yeah it it hit for me in a way that he hasn't landed a hit for a while in a way, the framing device is more outwardly emotional than the Asteroid City portions are. And it's, I don't know, there's something to do with those levels that, yeah. levels of abstraction, in a way, that the character we're actually following is the actor and not strictly the character. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I also went and saw by myself The Last Voyage of the Demeter. Um, I am not going to call it by its regional title because they have insisted on changing its title in Australia and some other places to Dracula Voyage of the Demeter, um, just in case, you know, the idiots in the audience couldn't get it. Uh, but this is a monster movie directed by Andre Overdahl. It's based on a single chapter in the novel Dracula by Bram Stoker, and it follows a physician named Clemens, played by Corey Hawkins, who joins the crew of the ship Demeter as a means of gaining passage back to England from Romania. But he should have picked a different boat, because this one is transporting uh, in a crate Dracula, played by Javier Botet, the legendary vampire who is midway through the events of Dracula the novel and he's on his way to England to Carfax Abbey to... I know where the bastard sleeps! <laughs> to uh, to cause some <laughs> some hijinks. Uh, this is finally here. This has been long gestating. It's been, like, in development for over a decade. Uh, I'm so thrilled it, man, it, it got here. 
I think it's really strong. It lives up to its premise. And I actually find myself liking it the more I sit with it, the more time mm. I have to turn it over. Because um, it's such a dope concept. It, it embraces the... Because you were I- saying that you weren't too hot on some of the choices made. I still aren't. I, I'm still yeah. not. Mm. But I think that, like... I'll just say right now, the ending is a bad choice. They've really Hollywoodized the ending in a way that's like, oh, you thought you were going to be able to make a franchise out of this. That's why you changed the name. So next time it can be Dracula, colon, whatever. Um, Carfax Abbey. Yeah. Um, but like, it, this is not a movie that should have a sequel tease in its last minute. Um, and it, 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 it's, it, does really suck the air out and i think that's what i was reacting to because i saw you guys directly after i walked out of the cinema because we were about to go see asteroid city so i think that's what i was really reacting to whereas uh now i have more thinking about the thing as a whole and also to be fair we have been building this up in our minds for quite a while it's a bad ending it's a bad ending. No, I know like, what I'm. I I know, but what I'm yeah. saying is, we've been building up the movie for quite a while now. Like even even if they had stopped thirty seconds before they did, fine. Like actually, really strong. Um, mm. but like it's so just so, don't watch the last thirty seconds. It, I guess it's such a brazen. Like oh, maybe we can get a sequel out of this. Let's mm. remove finality. Um, but uh, it really does embrace the whole idea of the premise really well. Um. I mean, it is the movie Alien, but on a old-timey boat with a vampire instead of a xenomorph. Um, but it looks expensive, and it looks really legitimate. Like, they spent money on this, and uh, it looks the part, both in terms of, obviously, all of the, the monster stuff, but also in the period setting, the clothing, the ship itself. Um, and, you know, that's it seems not worked out for them because it seems like this movie's on track to lose money. But uh, it is, I think, also going to be the thing that gives it life on streaming services and things, is that this is a movie that once you turn it on is pretty captivating. Um, it's slow-paced, um, more so than I think a lot of people were probably expecting from a studio horror movie in this day and age. This is a lot more in the... It's not... It's not I'm I'm only talking about the pacing here when I compare it to this. But I'm not talking about the content of the horror, mm. but the night house. Um, mm. Like it's it's a very slow pace. Like if you're waiting for Dracula to start tearing into people, you're going to be waiting a while because it is very much like um, it, it's an old school story. It's a hammer wants horror you story. Sit, wants you to sit with the people. Yeah, it's even like um like. The original Alien, which it's cl- so clearly taking so much inspiration mm. from, like the Alien doesn't actually jump out of John Hurt's chest until like forty-five minutes into that movie. Um, mm. But uh, it could stand to lose fifteen minutes. I think. I think it is perhaps a tad too long, um, and it does fail to differentiate most of the crew. Uh, it doesn't really give all of them distinct personalities that you can immediately recognise. Uh, it really does focus on the main ones and you will learn pretty quickly who are going to be the main ones and who's going to vanish into the night uh, as soon as Dracula gets his Mm. act together. Um, But uh, it is better once everyone figures out that there's something on board with them and the, for lack of a better term, the the blood starts to pump. Um, It's a bloody film and it's a mean film. It makes choices. Like I was thinking going into it, I, 
I was kind of dreading the ending because I thought, they oh, they're going to Hollywoodize the ending. But they Hollywoodize it in a completely different way than the way I was expecting. Mm-hmm. They actually avoid the major pitfall that I thought they were going to make. Um, and they do it by doing some, like, real – some mean choices. Um, and mm. Dracula is just a, a great design. Like, he is in hibernation mode. He's not having blood on the regular. He, he's just there he's in regressed. stasis almost to get to – to London, and mm. so he's subhuman. He's not in his, you know, Gary Oldman form. <laughs> he's brilliantly played by Javier Botet. Like there is a, a meanness to him. One of the great moments of the movie for me is, I mean, the audience already knows it, but it's the moment where the characters realise that he's not just a creature, that he's actually smart and cruel. Mm. Um, but uh, that's the best kind of Dracula to me. Yeah, the Dracula who's legitimately a bastard like he's not interested in oh the return of a lost love i curse god for taking my wife from me no it's a he's a predator yeah like that that's the thing is this is like dracula playing with his food in a lot of ways Mm. this is meals on wheels um but uh it minds all of he's not locked in there with you you're locked in there with him um it minds all of the set pieces it can out of the premise, I do think it is a little limited by its setting, inevitably, which is one of the reasons why I think it goes on a little too long. I think if it had cut it down by 15 minutes, it could have been trucked along a bit more. Um, Hawkins is really good as the lead. Liam Cunningham is very good as the captain of the Demeter. Uh, and it is pretty, pretty accurate um, in terms of maintaining the continuity of the Captain's Log chapter of the, mm. the Dracula novel. Good, good. Because it's my favourite chapter from yeah, the book. They do leave it in pretty much the place that it needs to be left for it to be in continuity with the actual Bram Stoker novel. Nice. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's it's a strong horror film, and I'm, I think it's, it's great that they got to make this finally after so many years of attempts. Uh, it's mm. a little unfortunate that it seems to have performed so poorly but such is life uh hopefully it becomes like a cult kind of movie yeah i can see that definitely um at home i saw too big to fail it is an hbo drama film directed by curtis hansen it's based on the non-fiction book too big to fail the inside story of how wall street and washington fought to save the financial system and themselves by andrew ross sorkin And it chronicles the beginning of the 2008 global financial crisis, specifically during and immediately after the collapse of uh, the American uh, bank Lehman Brothers, as Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson, played by William Hurt, and the economic wing of the US federal government try to keep it from escalating into a full-blown depression. Um, This is extremely compelling, but I imagine only to weirdos like me. Um... Hey, it'd be compelling to a weirdo like me too. It is obsessed with process and documentation. There is no time for the personal lives of any of these characters, what their home life is like or what they might be going through. Like, There's none of that stuff that's sort of forced into so many biopics that you see or historical things you ever see about, you know, or how does this affect their relationship with their wife or their best friend or whatever. It's like, no, you never see them except at work. And uh, Is it still people in suits and boardrooms yelling at each other? Oh, absolutely. It is, it is all... The history stuff, and that's the way I like it. It it does a really good job of making 
a complicated problem understandable, sometimes at the cost of a flowing script. And, uh, I mean, there is there is like a scene where all of the characters really just break the whole thing down from beginning to end because because basically they're trying to figure out how they're going to explain it to the American public. Um, but it it's it's very much as like basically a story meeting <laughs> between writers is what it reads like. Um, mm. How do we explain this plot? Um, it's uh, got an absolutely outstanding cast as well. It's uh, features. Um, let me just pull up the IMDb here uh, and sort by popularity. Um, in addition to Hurt, Paul Giamatti, Matthew Modine, Billy Crudup, uh, Bill Pullman, James Woods, Tony Shalhoub, Cynthia Nixon, Topher Grace, Edward Asner, um, and John Hurd. It's a very, very strong cast. Um, and I would say that Giamatti is particularly strong uh, as sort of like the doomsayer, the harbinger, the guy who's like, he is, a, I mean, the real guy, he had done his whole like economic study at university on the great depression and the causes of the great depression and he's the guy in the meetings who's just like pull your thumbs out guys like this is where we're headed we need to do something he saw the writing on the wall um and that's and and the cast is used very uh very cleverly because you have so many people coming in and out of the movie um when they introduce a character, they will often fade in their name and their position onto the screen as text because there's just so many people, this revolving door of characters, and they use all these famous people or recognisable character actors so that you can keep track of and keep the distinction between them. You might not remember who that guy's, what that guy's name is, but you remember, oh, that's Bill Pullman. He's one of the bank guys. And you remember their involvement in the story by recognising the actors, um, which is quite That's clever. That's helpful. Yeah. Uh, but really, this is a story about greed interfering with survival instinct, that there were so many ways that they could have pulled that plane up um, before it, it hit the water, but they didn't because it would have meant some people having a financially uh, poor quarter at the next earnings report. Um, and... Uh, it's a very frustrating but also grimly compelling. It, it really shows how that whole debacle was a self-inflicted wound and that the people who were responsible for inflicting that wound in the end were the ones that really got away without a scratch. Um, but it also affirms that there really was no choice for the government to end up doing the things that it did. Um, and for the institutions to end up doing the things that it did once the crisis started. You needed to bail out the banks because if you didn't, the, res- the result would have been economically apocalyptic. Um, like that's that, You can complain all you want about how the bankers got handed a bunch of government money and didn't have to deal with the outcome. Well, the outcome for the rest of us would have been so, so much worse if the government had let them all go under. Like, that's the mm. too-big-to-fail idea, is that you've, you're literally too big. We can't let you fail, because in the collapse, you'll take you're out floating, the rest of us. You're floating everyone else above you. Yeah. Um, it does have a 
distressing cameo appearances by actors playing Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell who appear to have they appear to have their faces CG'd to make them look like the real people the freaky deep, plasticky deep fake and they're it's so, so creepy I mean they are the would be to the American viewing population the most recognisable characters in this and they're in there for like barely like Mitch McConnell gets one shot where you get a decent look at him Nancy Pelosi gets like two or three, and I could see why they would want to, uh, in that sense, just why you might come to the conclusion, ah, let's just CG them um, so that they're immediately recognisable and just call it a day. But it's a weird sort of like slippery facial feature kind of thing. It looks very odd. Um, Mm. Although I will say I did immediately recognize who they were supposed to be. (laughs) And uh, so in in that sense, I suppose it it served its purpose. Um, I do want to end here with uh, reading a little bit of the uh, IMDb parents guide for this movie in the frightening and intense scenes section. To a child, none. To any adult with an investment portfolio or a mortgage, very scary. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, tell me where it lies. Uh, but it's available for streaming in Australia on Binge and Foxtel now, if anyone is interested. Um, lastly, this week, I watched The Chameleon. It is a mystery drama film directed by Jean-Paul Salome. It's inspired by a non-fiction book of the same name by Christophe D'Antonio, and it's about a missing kid named Nicholas Randall. He's played by Marc-Andre Grondon. He's found years after he went missing, and he returns to his family. But there is an FBI agent named Jennifer Johnson, played by Famke Janssen. Uh, she thinks that something strange is going on, and she starts digging. Um, so this is a movie that you can't really talk about without spoiling, and so I am actually going to spoil it, because it's not a twist. You're meant to figure it out as the movie goes along. But it's also the point of the film. It's the reason why it was made. It's the reason to watch it. It's the reason it's on the list, is because I heard about the real-life story that this is based on. And frankly, you're not going to watch this anyway. I don't think anyone listening to this is going to watch it anyway, because it's not very good. And also, it's a really like sort of low-budget, independent-y thing that's, you know, it's not going to float into a lot of people's Netflix queues. Um, So it's based on the real case of this kid, Nicholas Barclay, who went missing, returned to his family several years later, except it wasn't Nicholas Barclay. It was a 20-something-year-old French con man pretending to be this teenager. Yeah, I've heard about this. And uh, when he was found out, not by the FBI, but by a private investigator, he just confessed to everything and was like, thank God, because I'm pretty sure they knew I wasn't their son all along because I'm pretty sure they killed the kid and covered it up. Um, and you're forced to uh, to ask yourself, is this the cruelest con of all? Is this this guy who they've got dead to rights now and is just throwing one last grenade in under the door as it closes behind mm. him to destroy the, the lives of these people? Because this is a guy who had done these kinds of cons, identity cons, hundreds of times and also impersonated two other missing children in addition to this at different times. Like This is a, a gentleman with no moral scruples. So I really have to question what 
in the absence of any legitimate evidence um, other than strange behaviour on the family's part. I think that the allegation made was that the boy's brother killed him and that the family covered it up. Um, but the brother was conveniently dead by the time that this con artist was apprehended and so it never went anywhere. But that's the whole reason to make the movie is that pivot and that's the whole reason to watch it. And the film mines decent tension out of uh, that and decent intrigue out of it. It evolves into a surprisingly thoughtful character study. And I say surprising because other than, I will say, an, an above average commitment to exploring the mentality of the family, uh, especially the mother and the relationship that she forms with this con artist, um, other than that, the script is generally pretty terrible. The bones of it are fine, the story structure is fine, but the detail is clunky as hell. Um, Ellen Barkin plays the mother, uh, Kimberly. She carries the whole movie. She's the most interesting character, um, and her relationship with uh, Nicholas slash Frederick is the most interesting stuff. Um, it's the best stuff in the movie because it's the stuff that has depth. The rest of it tends to be a little shallow. But it's all about mothers and sons. This is the thing it tries to pull, is the relationship between the mother and her actual missing son, the relationship between the mother and the imposter, the relationship between the imposter and his real-life mother, which they don't bring in until the very last bit of the, the film, and not very successfully. Um, it's not the neatest kind of character development, but they do find some you know, intriguing psychological depth there to at least scratch at, uh, if not dive into as much as you might want. It is a short movie, um, but it still runs out of steam because once you figure it out, it has no more cards to play. It loses momentum. Um, it, as a character study, I would say it's interesting, but as a, a movie, not so much. And as I have mentioned before, I think they lean into the true story thing a little more than I'm comfortable with, considering the where that allegation is coming from in real life. Like, they start this movie with the tagline, "This the following is based on true events. And uh, I think maybe you're pushing that in a way that, like, I don't know. I, I don't think anyone's ever going to know. But I'm uncomfortable uh, trusting the word of that guy to so thoroughly accept it in the way that this movie does it by making a movie inspired by it sure but to outright say at the beginning that that's the truth and mm. um but yeah that's me done for the week have you guys seen anything uh no um i do have a pit take and you have two so i'll let you get do yours first oh no give me a chance to stop speaking i've been speaking too long <laughs> right out uh so i finished a book and it's an audiobook obviously uh, but it's called Drama, an actor's education. In this riveting and surprising personal history, John Lithgow shares a backstage view of his own struggle, crisis, and discovery, revealing the early life and career that took place out of the public eye. All abo Above all, Lithgow's memoir is a tribute to the most important influence in his life, his father, Arthur Lithgow, who, as an actor, director, producer, and great lover of Shakespeare, brought theatre to, brought theater to John's boyhood, from bedtime stories to Arthur's illustrious productions, performance and storytelling were constant and cherished parts of family life. Drama and actor's education details with poignancy and sharp recollection the moments that introduced a budding young actor 
to the undeniable power of theatre. Uh, this is, of course, the autobiography of our podcast patron saint, John Lithgow, and it is also uh, performed by him in the reading on Audible, uh, which is really the only way to get it as an audiobook, obviously. Uh, this is extremely well-written, and is an incredibly reflective look at Lithgow's early life. Uh, when he does the reading himself, it really helps you feel the weight of his memories and his recollections. Because if you were just reading it on the page, there would be a bit of a disconnect there. But to hear him say it, and his particular tone of voice, how as he's reading it out, you can hear him remembering, that's really, really effective and affecting. Uh, he adores live theater. And he details his struggles, successes... He details his struggles, successes, and failures, both professional and personal, uh, over the course of his career in the theater before making it as a screen actor. Sadly, though, this movie uh, does not detail much of his time on the screen. Yeah, it stops uh, kind of before he jumps from the stage to the screen, yeah. right? Uh, they mention a, He mentions a little bit at the end of uh, The World According to Garp as like his first like huge role. Uh, on screen, uh, but it doesn't really get into much of that. I would have loved to hear more of that, but it would move against the point of the book. It'd be interesting to see if he ever writes a part two. I would love to hear a part two, because there's a lot in his screen career that I'd love to hear from his perspective. Uh, why did he choose certain roles that he did? Um, he does mention a bunch of his on-screen roles. Uh, he mentions uh, Third Rock from the Sun a couple of times. Obviously, he mentioned World According to Garp. Uh, he mentions uh, an experience on a particular movie early in his career with an actor that he didn't get along with. Uh, he also mentions several times through the book several of the people of note that he came across. There were a bunch of people he interacted with in his early time in the theatre uh, who have become huge stars. He also uh, goes through a particularly dark period of his life, which was his affair with uh, Leave Allman, um, who, of, who of course was a huge megastar at the time, uh, all the way from Norway, and was considered Ingmar Berman's muse. Um, and he is he's pretty brutal to himself about all of that. He, he doesn't let himself really off the hook with that. That's the stuff that I, like, I have a copy of this sitting on my Audible account for when I finish the Tomorrow series. That's the stuff I've read a little bit about it, is, is that how um, introspective and, and honest it seems. Yeah. That like, it's not, like, self-aggrandizing from what I've, what I've read the, of the reviews no. and things, that it's very much a guy who's actually interested in unpacking himself, warts and all. And, like, he refers to that period of his life as his late adolescence, which is a very interesting way to phrase that and um, seems pretty accurate. Um, but really, the center and core of this book is his relationship with his father, Arthur. John's first productions, first acting performances were in his father's productions. Uh, he deeply adores his father. You can even hear it now in his reading of it, that he has wonderful memories of the man that... There is no John Lithgow, the actor, without the without Arthur Lithgow, the artist. And John 
always pays deference to him, which is really, really touching. Because when you hear him speak, I don't know, it's it's just very, very moving. Um, he also talks a little bit in the in the postscript about the process of writing the book, uh, because by that point he had only really written children's short stories. And of course, that uh, that book about all of his various ideas for parties. Yes, and like this is his first crack at long form literature, and it's really, really well done. Um, he has this really, really strong authorial voice. I've read and listened to a shitload of of autobiographies. It's one of my favorite things. I find a lot of these people really fascinating, but with a lot of autobiographies, I don't know, you can't really hear the person. Even if they're reading it, something about the language doesn't feel quite right, but Lithgow the way that he writes it is the way he speaks. It's the way you hear him speak in interviews and behind the scenes footage on, on the red carpet. This is his voice and it's the way that he speaks. So it comes off as incredibly clear and unique um, as an authorial voice. I would love a follow-up uh, going into his time on screen because a lot of what he talks about in this book in terms of an actor's education is about stage acting, which I've done stage acting before, I've studied it, and his worldview on it is remarkable. It is fascinating. I wish I knew it when I was doing that. Um, and if I ever do it again, I will take a lot of the lessons he spoke about, uh, both in terms of technique and perspective, into that. But screen acting is very different to stage acting. And I would love to hear what he has to say about that, um, because he's been doing this for a very long time now. Um, so that would be really, really cool. I think you're going to have a great time with this, Lawson, when you get around to it. Uh, it's a pretty brisk one. I paced it out because I listened to multiple audiobooks at once, much to Lawson's confusion. Uh, sometimes I'm in the mood for certain things and other times I'm not, but I'm always listening to audiobooks. This is perhaps my favorite autobiography that I've read slash listened to, because the voice is so clear, and so clearly John Lithgow. Um, no, it's, it's, a, it's fantastic. Um, like I said, I would love to fo have that follow-up, especially since uh, he's grown from there as a person and as an actor. I had multiple different kinds of roles, so it, to have uh, another perspective would be cool. Uh, I have finished another video game. I've concluded the Bioshock series, as it currently stands anyway, with Bioshock Infinite. It is a science fiction first-person shooter developed by Irrational Games. This time it's set in 1912, when it follows a private investigator named Booker DeWitt, voiced by Troy Baker. Uh, he is hired to voyage to the flying city of Columbia, which is a... Uh, city occupied by religious nationalists led by their quote-unquote prophet Comstock voiced by Kiff van den Heuvel and they have a cult-like obsession with a young woman that they refer to as the Lamb uh, named Elizabeth voiced by Courtney Draper she is prophesied to be important somehow in their ideology and Booker is there to rescue her and return her to the ground below um, bring us but the girl and wipe away the debt Yes, but uh, once he's up there, he discovers that she has 
powers to access the multiverse, essentially, alternate realities, to travel between them and to also bring things in from them. Um, and just in general in gameplay, be really helpful. <laughs> uh, this plays the best of all of the Bioshock games, but at the cost of complexity. A lot of the systems that they did in the first two games are just straight up junked. They're gone. Um, and what's there in its place is a much more typical corridor shooter moving from point A to point, point B along a fairly rigidly designed pathway. Um, but it moves so much better. The weapon design is much improved and the level design suits that new purpose. Like they have changed the way that they have approached this as a game, as the way You've it plays. You've got to be a lot faster. Um Plasmids are back, but they're now called Vigors, and they felt far more useful than they did in the first two as well. You get a lot more mileage out of them, or at least I did. Um, I love the murder of crows. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of really cool ways that you can muck around with them in a way that felt more immediately reactive than they like, did in the not first only two. Can you sh- not only can you shoot them, you can set traps too. Mm. So that that's an immediate level of strategy that you can apply to this shooting gallery sort of thing. Well, you, you could in the first two games as well, but I never found the effects of yeah. it's the more useful to now. be. Yeah. Um, it is fairly infamously changed by the stuff they showed in pre-release footage, uh, especially how expansive the levels seemed like they were originally intended to be. Um, there's a, like, sky hooks where you use this, like, grappling thing to ride around on these lines that connect the different parts of the floating city and that you use that as like a, a way to quickly traverse an area during combat but it would appear from some of that pre-release footage that was originally going to be far more intense and have far more wide-ranging um, areas of approach and, and areas of places to go and explore um, but from the sounds of it Ken Levine who is the main guy between but behind Bioshock and Bioshock Infinite, has a tendency to just junk stuff and get distracted by new ideas and things. Like this is fairly well documented, and it seems like this is a victim of that uh, that impulse, which is a shame um, because, again, what is left behind is the least complex and the least groundbreaking, gameplay-wise, version of itself that it could be. Um but Columbia is uh, a great design, a great look. It's this sort of steampunk city in the clouds. But the atmosphere is severely undercut when compared to Bioshock 1 and Bioshock 2. Uh, the environmental storytelling is just so reduced, um, in part because you're on those very strict point A to point B sort of level pathways, but the way that they told little stories in the environment, if you were paying attention in the first game uh, and in the second as well, that's just really not there. You get a bit of it at the very start, um, but once Booker is discovered in Columbia and it turns into like an action, action, action kind of thing, um, that stuff really vanishes pretty quickly. And I found myself at the end of it really not knowing very much about Columbia. Like, I know a lot about Rapture. I played those games and I listened to all the audio diaries. I used a guide to find all the audio diaries so I can listen to all of the lore. Like, 
I had my problems sometimes with how the ideology was presented and and some of the narrative choices that were made, but it was mapped out. It was clear. I knew who occupied this place. I knew why they came there. I knew what they wanted to do there. I can't say the same for Colombia. I don't know why it was built. I don't really know when it was built. I don't know how Comstock became the leader of it. I don't know what he actually believes. I don't even know what he plans to use Elizabeth for. I don't really understand the ideology of the place beyond a vague sort of uh, religious, fascist, racist kind of like 1920s, 19-teens reflection of real-life white nationalist America. Um it's a good topic, but they don't really do anything with it. But uh, maybe it's better they didn't, because the way that it, it does do stuff with it is some of the ways that this game has aged poorly. Like, people have turned on this game in a way that I understand without really thinking is all the way fair. Um, mm. It's It's got this sort of both sides thing that it, it makes the point, or it comes dangerously close to making the point. Actually, no, no, it just makes the point, the more I'm thinking about it, that um, that the racists, are, that, that the uh, the freedom fighters fighting back against the racists are going to turn out to be just as bad as the racists were and just as violent and just as evil. Um, and, you know, I get why that's really an unappealing idea to a lot of people when they play through it now, especially given how the world has changed between 2013 and now. Um, but Newsflash, that was in the other two Bioshock games as well. Like, it's it's a variation on a theme. The rebel ends up being a, just a bigger threat as the dictator that they were originally overthrowing. That's right there from the beginning. And you know what? It also has some historical context to it. If you talk about the French Revolution and things like that, those guys got pretty out of control that once they actually had some power. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm sympathetic to why people find it to be a turn-off. Mm. It's certainly not handled very elegantly at all. Um, but uh, I'm also, and maybe it's just that I'm getting older or maybe it's just that I'm getting tired or maybe it is that some of these conversations are getting more and more loud. I, I don't know what the result of it, what the reason for it is, but I do find myself getting a little more frustrated and a little more running out of patience for people who will refuse to listen to an idea unless it agrees with them exactly. Mm. Um, I think that there's a whole, obviously there's a whole lot of gradations to that. um, And there's definitely reasons to criticize this game for the way that it tells its story and the way that it tells that story. But to suggest that it should not have been allowed to tell that story at all is something that I completely reject. I personally think that self-reflection is a good thing um, and that, you know, no matter how good your intentions are, I really start to get nervous when I come across people who are so committed to their ideology and to their worldview to such a myopic degree that they cannot even begin to criticise it or to think about it in a way beyond their own immediate experience of it. Um, But that's a broader issue than... Bioshock Infinite definitely really has the the wherewithal or the responsibility to to talk about. It's just something that I've been thinking about more recently in terms of some of the uh, the stuff that I've been seeing in the media. But did you guys follow this thing with Bradley Cooper's new movie 
the thing I, about the prosthetic I, nose. I, I saw yeah. it. I saw he's, what the he's, he's playing a very famous Jewish man, and um, he's wearing I saw a very the response of his family. Yeah. But that's the yeah, first exactly. I heard of any of exactly. it. Exactly. But he's playing a very famous Jewish man, a composer, Leonard Bernstein, and. Uh, Leonard Bernstein had a very large nose, and so Bradley Cooper wore a prosthetic nose to visually look like the man that he was portraying. And of course, there's a very long and very awful history of the caricatures of, of Jewish people with large noses. It's very a stereotype. It's been used in really hateful ways. Um, but that just became this massive internet furor for just like calling the movie anti-Semitic, calling Bradley Cooper anti-Semitic, and then his family had to come out and say, look, sometimes a fake nose is just a fake nose. Sometimes it's mm. just about getting the actor to look like the guy that he's playing. And that, to me, was sort of like, I don't recall it like the, it was just exhausting and sort of summed mm. up exactly what I'm talking about in terms of like, mm. sometimes a thing is not an attack. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I didn't really notice much of that i just yeah. i saw what bernstein's family said yeah but it looks interesting the but that's the that sort of ties into some of the stuff that i'm talking about with the reaction to yeah. bioshock infinite sometimes the most hateful and the worst possible thing you can come up with for the reasoning behind something um is not why it was done you know yeah. sometimes it's just because like, the people behind the thing didn't Realize didn't that. get it, or and sometimes Look, it's also because they're actually trying to say something different than you are. Let's hmm. let's also admit the Bioshock games have not always been the most philosophically complex. Oh yeah, that's like something I've talked about <laughs> in the first two. Like, like they, for all they of the talk about a lot of things for all pretty... of the points that it that it has gotten from mainstream gaming criticism for you know tackling objectivism or versus collectivism and stuff. It delves into that stuff so shallowly. Yeah, like, it's, an um, it's a Wikipedia look. It's a look at a Wikipedia page yeah. on a philosophy. Yeah. It's just that, like, to put it quite bluntly, like, it was talking about objectivism in the first game, and a mm. lot of the people that have made the criticisms about Bioshock Infinite agreed with the criticisms that were made about objectivism. No one played mm. Bioshock 2, so there was no one talked about the collectivism thing. <laughs> but then when Bioshock Infinite came along and they were like, okay, now we have some critics about criticisms about revolution and rebellion. Mm. That stuff didn't didn't work into the worldview of the same of a lot of people in the same way. Yeah. And so we come back to our, our position as a society where we're just so very unable to comprehend an opinion, a complex opinion that we don't a hundred percent agree with without placing the author of that opinion as being our opponent in some way. And and also, like, the games don't really feel... Like, and that's the thing. The games don't really land on very many things. Yeah, like, that's the thing. Philosophically? Like, I will, like, to go back to criticising Bioshock, because, as I said, there are things to criticise about the way yeah. that story was presented um, and the, th the way it handles its themes. But, like, it really is asking for it. Because I get the impression, certainly in Bioshock Infinite, that they walked away from that first game saying, like, yeah, we are pretty mature storytellers, aren't we? Let's <laughs> let's make another really politically mature story. And they like, just chose a topic that was a lot more hot button than, yeah, you know, Anne Rand's 60-year-old bad ideas. Yeah. <laughs> let's, touch, let's touch some real live wires. Yeah. And, like, like, it's their own fault. 
because they overestimated their own abilities mm. and like Icarus, they flew too close to the sun. But, uh, but like back to the game, I love the tactile feel of it. Yeah, it, it, it just feels damn good to play. It plays a lot better, and you know it looks really good as well. Um, it has just a, a fantastic visual style to it. It I'm really looking forward to that new Bioshock they're making, mm. um, because I think that to create one of these incredible cities on modern hardware will be great. And I also think I mentioned it when I talked about the first Bioshock. It, that's a game that really is a great candidate for one of these like Demon Souls Resident Evil 4 style remakes on modern hardware. I think that's actually mm. a really obvious candidate. Um, but uh, it's the story here, other than all of that political stuff, it, it some of the character work is at fault. Like that sort of ties into, especially the presentation of the character of Daisy Fitzroy, who is leading yeah. this rebellion and is, and is um, a black woman who is presented as completely losing the plot and becoming very vicious as the game goes on. Um, she just has no character development. You know, mm. they want to approach that idea, but they don't want to spend the time doing the character development to make it feel organic. Um, and that's another way in which the, uh, the game sort of pales in comparison to the first two Bioshocks is that sort of supporting character, character development. You don't get as much mm. of it. The people in the audio logs in those first two games had a lot of texture to them. I found mm. out a lot about people who were long dead by the time those games started. Some people we prefer to the actual protagonists. And um, here in this game, um, you find out a lot about the people that you're actually encountering, but it still does really nothing to flesh them out. Mm. Um the exception there is the crucial exception. It's the ex in exception that still makes the whole game work, is the relationship between Booker and Elizabeth. Mm. They are really well drawn. They are really well textured and detailed. But um, it, this is another one of them. Uh, gruff older guy takes younger person under their wing games. Yeah, yeah. The sad dad kind of thing. And I think that's another reason why the game has sort of faded in popular estimation. Because when it came out... It was overwhelmingly well-received. Yeah. Um, obviously, the politics faded, but something else also happened. Th three months later, The Last of Us came out and... Um, it blew it out of the water. Yeah, and it's very, very similar in terms of the central dynamic. And I think that what it would have gotten justified praise for uh, in the memory of it, you know, the relationship between these two characters and the sort of competing... You know, the, the sort of friction of that sort of paternal nature versus young rebellious person nature versus, you know, they each want different things. That stuff was done with such better and with such better complexity with The Last of Us, which is not mm. to criticise what Bioshock Infinite does at all. It, it does it very well. Simply... It's just not as yeah. good. No, of course. Um, but uh, that's the stuff that that's, works the best narratively. It's the best written it's really well acted by Baker and Draper, mm. um, and it gives the whole thing its emotional hook, uh, and it's where the actual plot stuff is the most engaging. I will say that the plot tries to get far too clever at the <laughs> end. Uh, I have thought that ever since I played it for the first time yeah. in 2013. I continue to think it now. It contorts itself into an uncomfortable pretzel to nail a thematic point that it doesn't really earn. Um, but I like how it... Uh looks at the similarities between... Between, yeah, as, as the general, like, sort of plot premise of the Bioshock series, yeah. yeah. that That's a pretty compelling idea. 
and it is expanded um, on in the DLC campaign mm. that they released for Burial at Sea. What did sea. you think about it? Um, that was a, I think it has strong gameplay, but a weak story. It's mm. sort of, it's a two-part campaign. They released it in two episodes. Uh, and what I will say for gameplay-wise, it's some of the most interesting gameplay in the whole game because it experiments with the form that has been established in the main campaign. Episode one does this sort of ammo scarcity survival horror thing where you take more damage and you have less ammo. Uh, but then episode two, you're actually playing as Elizabeth and it becomes much more of a stealth game, almost a little bit like Dishonored or something of that ilk. Kinda, yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's the rift powers that Elizabeth yeah. has. Yeah. And that's the stuff that uh, is quite interesting in the way that they mess with the gameplay dynamics of it. But uh, narratively... Yeah. Narratively, I think the whole campaign is a mess. Um, it's confusing. It's far too pleased with itself. You know, I'm mm. not a passive viewer. I don't skip cutscenes. And like I said, I collected every audio log in all of these games using a guide because I want to soak up all of that lore. I still don't really get how all of it is supposed to hang together at the end of that mm. campaign. Like, it's... It's very much this tangled knot of like, this is an interesting idea. This is an interesting idea. Let's sort of like mash that square peg into that round hole to make it work. Um, it does, to go back to the sort of ideological failures or perceived failures of the main game for a little bit, it does so much triage work on the popular, on the unpopular elements of that. Mm. Um to a point that is frankly almost embarrassing, <laughs> like, like it, 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 it's almost like this sort of like shameful kind of like abashed trying to sweep it all under the rug. Like it really is actually kind of pathetic in the way that it so diligently goes back on its own point from the main game. Um, mm. But uh, it also uh, this campaign heads back to Rapture, uh, and that's just so incredible to see in the newer engine that infinite was operating it's a different in. art style too very different you know that the main bioshock infinite game is not very well lit it's not very horror i should say it is very no. well lit um there are, there's a lot of color whereas rapture and so the burial at sea campaign uh there's a lot more shadow there's a lot more like spooky lighting it's much more horror again it's gorgeous um as, as I, I have mentioned before in my previous two, this was my asshole playthrough of these games. The asshole playthrough on this is frankly non-existent. There is, <laughs> is only a, a handful of aesthetic options, um, and it has no impact on narrative or on ending or anything like that. They and really I really just gave up on it. <laughs> yeah, I knew that going in. Frankly, I, I only did it again just because it would have felt weird to play the first two without playing the concluding chapter. Um, mm. But yeah, like I said, it, it really does come off like Ken Levine and co very self-consciously trying to repeat the magic that they worked in that original game. Uh, and it ends up spoiling the alchemy a little by being too self-aware, I think. Yeah. Too self-aware and not self-aware enough at the same time. <laughs> um, yeah. But if anyone would like to play this, you can find it available on PC, PS3, Xbox 360, PS4, Xbox One, the Switch, and backwards compatible uh, and via backwards compatibility for the PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series S and X consoles. Uh, How is it optimized for? It plays the newer... really well. 
yeah, it plays really well. It looks really good. The remaster is quite strong. Um, but uh, it's pretty well optimized on Switch too, I have to say. But you will not hear from me again from a video game for quite a while because I'm done with this year's asshole replaythroughs, uh, and I am now returning to the Elder Scrolls with the Elder Scrolls Skyrim. So oh, you won't Christ. you won't hear from me for months on that. I do. It won't be as long as it took me on Oblivion, I don't think, because a I've already read like half of the books <laughs> um, that are in game because they were in Oblivion. They were yeah. in Oblivion, but. Uh, also, I've restructured my life a little bit to give me a little more free time than I had when I was playing Oblivion. So, uh, And also, um, there's no way you could possibly do everything, right? I'm going to try. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're going to try, but At a certain point, something's going to yeah, have to give. You're kind of like, there are those like radial quest stuff that, yeah. I mean, I've, I have found playing through it that they're they're good to like send you to different locations and things and give you a reason to go there. But yeah, uh, we'll see. At, at a certain point, I will just stop. Um, yeah. Uh, when I stop getting new bespoke quests and that don't that don't send me to you know interesting locations that I've been before. But uh, the other pith take I have this week is a stage musical. A uh, a musical that I'm sure the both of you were very jealous that you did not get to go along with me because this I is, was. of course, uh, as a podcast, we are pro this IP. Um, it took us a while to get there, but Jean and I beat, some sense. Shit we beat some sense into Harley in the end. I am, of course, talking about Mamma Mia. Uh, I went and saw the stage musical. It was written by Catherine Johnson. It's inspired by the musical repertoire of ABBA. And it follows Sophie, played in this version by Sarah Crindija. Uh She's getting married. Um, she lives on this Greek island with her mother, Donna, played by Elise McCann. And she doesn't know who her father is, and she really wants him to be at the wedding. And so she reads her mother's diary and finds out that she has three potential fathers. Uh, Sam, played by Martin Cruz. Harry, played by Drew Livingston. And Bill, played by Tim Wright. And she invites them all to the wedding to uh, basically... to discover who her father is uh obviously i'm a big mamma mia stan so is sean harley less so um oh come on you are you were only pro the second one um i retroactively fixed that that's not how it works harley you know you can't you can't just undo a scar like that um but <laughs> uh you can uh you can refer to our episodes on both, we did an episode on both Mamma Mia episodes. We did two parter, um, and I actually think they are two of our strongest episodes in the whole catalogue. Um, but uh, see those if you want to hear our detailed thoughts on the narrative of Mamma Mia. This is the second time I've seen it on stage. I saw it back in 2011, um, and it's still a blast. It's fun, it's funny, uh, a great use of the ABBA music. It's a simple plot, but it's done well, and it's done with heart. And uh, what was most interesting to me watching it this time was having done those episodes on the movie so recently and to have gone so in-depth into the narrative with you guys as I did, to see the choices that they made for the film and how they adapted it was really interesting. Um, Especially interesting is some of the songs they chose to cut. So in the original stage version, each of the three dads has their own song with Sophie. And those are all cut. And in its place in the movie is Our Last Summer, which she has with all three of them. 
that's repurposed from a uh, an additional scene between Harry and Donna, so the Colin Firth character and Donna, mm. um, which plays so interestingly, like his duet our last summer between the two of them on the stage. It plays so much inter- interesting, more interestingly, because uh, you know he's, you know, if you've seen the play or if you've been paying attention that he's gay and it's this gay man singing with this woman that he once had a a love affair with it's got such an interesting quality to it in a way that may be like really sad that i understand why they changed it for the movie because they had to like sort of do a shorthand to give sophie some development time with these guys but uh it's i'm i'm sad it got cut and i'm also sad that the song that sam has in the play um knowing me knowing you is cut as well, because I actually think it's a really strong moment for that character. Um, the movie also mu- also very much focuses in on the dynamic between Donna and Sam a lot more than the stage version does. Uh, I'm a little hot and cold on the cast. Um, Crindesia, Cruz, and Livingston are really good. Um, I think McCann and the uh, the actresses who are playing um, Tanya and Rosie, they're a little bit daytime TV for me. Um, really didn't think that they were landing them and uh they didn't land a lot of the songs either i was particularly disappointed with winner takes it all um which is a shame because that was my favorite number in the movie um but uh martin cruz who plays sam the pierce brosnan character we have actually seen him before and talked about him before he is like a really like major character in the first resident evil movie yep um and it's like his one brush with Hollywood, basically, is that he plays the guy that can't open the door in time, and so everyone gets sliced up by those lasers. But he, like, sticks around in that movie from the beginning until, like, the last 20 minutes. Like, he's a main mm. character. Um, and he's got a great voice, too. Uh, but uh, it's it's a well-staged production. Um, I do remember liking the 2011 one more, but... Uh, it it's still a blast to watch. I do think they boganed it up a little um, for an mm. Australian audience in a way that I'm, you know, kind of like, you don't have to, guys. You don't have to throw in a reference to Toowoomba um, just to... We can still be classy. Yeah, well, it, Mamma Mia is far from the epitome of class. Like, look, yes, like, look but, it's, you know. it's, uh, but it's, I, I felt pandered to, and I don't like feeling mm. pandered to. Um, yeah. But they knew their audience. Like, there were alcoholic slushies in the foyer that you could bring into the theatre with that you. That tracks. And I've got to say, like, you can always order, like, beer and wine and things from the, the bar to take in while you watch the show. You can always do that at QPAC. But I will say that delivering the alcohol in slushy form seemed to encourage uncouth behaviour on the part of some of the <laughs> audience members. That makes sense. Uh uh, you yeah. sent us a photo of the stage. It looked quite good. Yeah, yeah. It's a look. It's a real crowd pleaser. By the end of it, people are getting up and they're dancing with all of the reprise music going on. I wasn't, but some people were. And uh, when it's you because go you're to a watch respectful patron you of the arts. Yes, yes. I'm patron of legitimate theatre. I'm. If I wanted to dance, I would go clubbing or some such similar thing. <laughs> um. Or I would do everyone else a favour and stay home and do it privately where no one can see. Uh, the respectful thing to do. Yes. Anyways, that's me done for the week. So why don't we now move to our deep dive on Super 8. 
got nothing against your friends. I like your friends. Well, things have obviously changed for us. I have to help Charles finish his movie. Be good for you to spend some time with kids who don't run around with cameras and monster makeup. Uh, could you close your eyes, please? Yeah. And action! freighter derailed what the cargo was on that freighter we don't know we can't tell anyone i know i understand you have concerns about our cargo colonel there isn't anything else that i should know is there i can assure you the answer is no we've got calls from people who found local dogs but the calls coming in aren't local Lucy! it's like they all just ran away i've got property damage i've got theft I've got nine people missing now. Clearly, things happening around here that I can't explain. We have to find this thing. I don't feel good about this. Go! I saw it. No one believes me. I believe you. What the hell? That was the trailer for Super 8. It is a science fiction creature feature directed by J.J. Abrams, and it is set in 1979 in a small Rust Belt American town that is thrown into disarray following the derailment of a military train as it passes by their railway siding. This is deeply intriguing to Joe Lamb, played by Joel Courtney, a boy spending his summer break from school trying to make a zombie movie with his friends on their Super 8 camera. It's directed by Joe's besties, Charles, played by Riley Griffiths, who intends to submit it in a competition if they can complete it in time. And to that end, he has enlisted the bookish Martin, played by Gabriel Basso, as his lead actor, pyromaniac Kerry, played by Ryan Lee for special effects, Preston, played by Zach Mills for sound, and Joe for makeup. Charles has also managed to secure the participation of Alice Daynard, played by Elle Fanning, a sweet but spiky classmate as the female lead. Joe is pretty chuffed about this, as he has a big crush on her, but it's made very complicated by the fact that her drunkard father is indirectly responsible for the death of Joe's mother in an industrial accident several months previously. Joe's dad, Jack, played by Carl Chandler, a sheriff's deputy deeply unsuited to single parenting, doesn't want Joe anywhere near Alice. Nevertheless, this is a film set in the 70s, so the kids roam wild in packs, doing whatever they please under virtually no adult supervision. That's Blowing how, shit up! That's how they come to be present when the train is derailed late one night, as they're trying to film a scene in the town's pitiful excuse for a railway station. <laughs> they saw what really happened. It wasn't an accident. Their weirdly intense science teacher, Dr. Woodward, played by Glenn Turman, 
intentionally rammed the train with his car, and in the ensuing chaos, their Super 8 camera captured something tearing its way out of the wreckage. And by, by a miracle, as if the hand of God has reached down, none of them die. It's very spectacular train derailment, <laughs> yes. Um, at the urging of an armed and raving Woodward, the kids say nothing. But sooner or later, a squadron of military personnel descend on the town under the leadership of the cold-blooded Colonel Nellick, played by Noah Emmerich. They say they're just here to supervise the cleanup of the crash, but they're not letting the local police anywhere near it, and soon enough people start disappearing from all over the place. Nellick's control of the town inches towards martial law, despite Jack's best efforts to figure out what's going on. Joe and his friends have beat him to it, however. Their own investigations have turned up a startling revelation. The military were transporting something of extraterrestrial origin in that train, and now it's loose, and it's very upset. So, before we go too deep into this, why don't we each give our timed 30-second thoughts on Super 8? And just to confirm, neither of you have seen this before, is that correct? No, we haven't. No, this is the first time. All right, well, why don't you start us off, Sean? Are you ready? Three, two, one, go. I really liked this. I thought all of the performances from the kids were very strong, especially Ellie Fanning. She is just an incredible performer and was so when she was young. The train crash is absolutely spectacular. It's all. They make a production out of it. And it is glorious to behold. And I love the design for the alien. It's almost got a Cloverfield-esque vibe to it. All right, you ready, Harley? Yep. Three, two, one, go. I like to describe uh, Super Eight as ET, but with an ET, but with an exclamation point instead of a full stop. Um, it is a co-production between J.J. Abrams and Steven Spielberg, so it has elements of both. Uh, but is a lot more sort of acerbic than something like ET was, which was a little more saccharine. Uh, I love how the movie is staged and shot. It feels very grounded, but the core of the movie is with the kids, not just with the alien. I'm a big fan of this. I saw it in the cinemas when it first came out, and it really did tap into my sort of like sci-fi monster movie love, especially at the age that I saw it. Um, I enjoy the Spielberginess of it. I even more enjoy the fact that Steven Spielberg's worst impulses are sharpened up a little and made rough again by J.J. Abrams. Um, although you really can't look at it as anything other than... I mean, if Steven Spielberg had not been involved, he would have had grounds for a lawsuit. <laughs> like, it's, you know what I mean by E.T. with an exclamation yeah, yeah. mark? It's, it is E.T. Like, the monster just wants to go home, except he's going to eat some people if he has to to get there. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's like if E.T. came out of the ship and he was absolutely fucking shredded. Uh, is it? Wouldn't it just be better if, like, that glowing finger, like, shot lasers out of it or something? Yeah. <laughs> I'd watch that e. version of E.T. It's an E.T. E. who, it's an e. who after, his after his resurrection gets pissed. Um, he phoned home and he did not yeah. like what he heard on the other end. He comes back wrong. He's seen too much. <laughs> he, he pet cemeteries. He pet um, cemeteries. But uh, like, it's it's worth just talking about it right now because I think we've actually had a, an exchange. I can't even remember where, but I think I said on the 
uh, on the podcast at some point that Super 8 is a better E.T. movie than E.T. And you guys sort of like raised your eyebrows at that. Um, and I, I was being semi facetious. It is a better, it's more what I want to see from mm. that kind of yeah. story than E.T. is. Um, obviously, E.T. is a classic movie that has, you know, influenced and uh, provided entertainment for generations. I'm not going to sit here and take shots at E.T. But um, for, for what I want to see, both when I first saw this movie as I would have been 17, I think, um, and now watching it as a 29-year-old going on 30, uh, this is definitely more of my interest than uh, than the, you know, please give me a cuddle kind of alien. <laughs> that uh, It's a lot sharper. Yeah, it's a lot sharper. While at the same time, I think keeping... It is kind of an E.T. remake, like, in the end. Like, you really can't get mm. away from it. In terms of story structure, it's very, very similar. Only E.T. is angry. <laughs> it feels like... And there's a lot of moments where it, they do it. It feels like the E.T. ripoff that J.J. Abrams would have made when he was a kid making home movies. Yes. Like, it has a lot of those aspects, not only in the sense that it's about a group of children making a movie, but that part where all of the army's guns are going off in the town and oh, all of the kids are running set. through the town into different houses to try to escape the danger, it feels like something that a kid would put together with a bunch of miniatures. And well, it's funny it, you say that. Um, so interesting that way. J.J. Abrams actually had a at a remove a relationship with uh, with Steven Spielberg from the time that he was a teenager making movies. It's what it's all based on is that he would make as a kid Super 8 movies with his friends and uh, he submitted a version of it into a contest and somehow this got the attention of Steven Spielberg and he actually hired him and one of his buddies, I think it was Drew Goddard, don't quote me on that, um, to restore some of the Super 8 movies that, Steven Spielberg had made when he was a teenager. So he just mm. gave his old, you know, home movies to these kids that he never met to have them restore it. And they did. And then years later, when J.J. Abrams was actually working as a professional in the industry, he met Steven Spielberg and they had this whole conversation. And at the end, he was like, you probably don't remember this, but Steven Spielberg was like, yeah, I know. I gave you all my stuff and you did a good job with it. Like, um, <laughs> so it, it was very like that connection there with the Spielberginess of it. I don't think... I mean, it's, it's clearly not a mistake, but it is so deeply embedded in the DNA of the yeah. project is that J.J. Oh, Abrams wanted absolutely. to make a Spielberg And the movie. fact that in this movie, J.J. Abrams doesn't have some of the pitfalls he does in other projects that he's not necessarily directing, but spearheading. All of the answers that we get don't lead to more questions. We get told the things we need to know, and they, we don't leave off with further questions. We get proper explanations for things. This isn't a strictly puzzle box. No, this is a more... Structure. This This is is a a bit more straightforward. Exactly. I am a J.J. Abrams defender when it comes to that he can't do endings thing, although I will admit my enthusiasm for making that defense has been tempered by Rise of Skywalker. (laughs) Um, He... All the stuff... Like, he gets, like, oh, Alias. Alias had a wacky ending. I kind of like it, but it's wacky, definitely. But 
he wasn't running Alias. I don't recall. I don't believe mm, at the time. I don't think so. Lost. He just straight up directed the pilot of and one other episode and was not involved yeah. in the writing room at all. Especially by the time it ended. Mm. Lost um, is its own kettle of fish. Yeah, and even Star Wars wasn't really his fault. He was sort yeah, of hired. Rose- Hired and was like if it was the fault of the people at Lucasfilm for not coming up with a story that they knew where they were going to go with it at yeah. the beginning. He Rise was, of Skywalker was a a, a patch job yes. that they didn't actually need to do Rise because Ian Johnson already knew what he wanted. Yeah, Rise of Skywalker was a Frankenstein's monster created in response to internet bullying. Um, yeah, yeah. And so, like, if you look at stuff like Super Eight, stuff like Cloverfield, stuff like uh, his two Star Trek movies. He actually, the, the whole, he the stuff that he actually has involvement in from beginning to end, I don't, I'm not sure it's a criticism of him that is really reflected in his work. Um, I'll be very interested to see where he goes now post Rise of Skywalker, because I think that he really needs to do something like Super 8 again, something that's not a franchise. Something Get back that is, to his roots. Yeah. Get the taste out of his mouth. Kind I mean, of I know he's done a lot of producing work. Um, yeah. a lot of his stuff has fallen prey to the reign of Papa Zaslav because he had yes. a uh, first look deal at um, at HBO. Oh, yeah. So he was going to make this massive, expensive, like science fiction TV show for HBO called Demimond. That's gone because Papa Zaslav didn't want to pay that much. He was going to produce a uh, like a horror, I believe, anthology series set in the Outlook, set in the hotel from The Shining. Hmm. Um, right, that's right. gone. Um, a lot of the stuff that he had in the cooker, obviously his his DC work, that's gone. His Justice League Dark idea, that, yeah, yeah. Uh, this Constantine thing gone. Like a lot of the stuff that he's been doing since Rise of Skywalker has been junked by the Zaslav regime. So it'll be interesting yeah. to see where he goes from here. Uh, the other thing that I watch that I see watching at this time that I couldn't have seen in 2011 but definitely do now even though I don't watch Stranger Things because I don't watch TV this definitely it's... seems like a Stranger Things dress rehearsal oh it is as I <laughs> oh, was yeah, watching it absolutely. I'm like yeah this it's basically it is about a bunch of kids dealing with some kind of sci-fi bullshit so it does but also interpersonal stuff as well yeah like... so it you are right, it does have that kind of feeling to it. And that sort of comes through with, as Holly said, the relationships between the characters, the relationship between Joe and Alice, and the love triangle? That's a triangle, because it doesn't have the conjoining thing there, but more of like a love V. I don't it's know, more like just a love line, but with an extra dot over in the corner looking jealously <laughs> on. <laughs> That's true. But on again, the outside yeah, looking in. It's a throwback to a time where it's obviously a throwback to a time that the filmmaker really responds to. And well, that look, comes it's, through it's, with a lot of the music, the it's, it's the other pieces of pop culture that you see out there. The fact that these kids talk like kids. They they swear, they have arguments, they call each other pussies. Like it's it all makes sense. It's coming from someone who was one of these kids. Well, it, it's got kind of... It uh, It has that Goonies, that it sort of thing. Well, that's the Amblin aspect. It is sharper. Yeah. 
to that point because this is also a story about grief. Yeah. And I wouldn't say that Stranger Things is copying Super 8 or anything like no. that. I no. merely note that I, I think it's coming from the same place. As you as you said, John, right. that these are stories that were important to these filmmakers who are now telling stories like them as adults. Um, yeah. And obviously Stranger Things, I mean, J.J. Abrams and Super A is very much entrenched in the Spielberg aspect of it, but Stranger Things all, uh, brings all in and all that Stephen King stuff and uh, John Carpenter and um, yeah. basically a who's who of 70s and 80s horror and sci-fi genre mm. storytelling things. Um, you can, but, but that whole idea of, as I mentioned in the... Uh, in the plot summary, latchkey kids run amok. Um, yeah. That's in so much fiction of that time. Not even that time, like going back earlier. What is like in Blighton Adventures, same thing. Or, yeah. you know, the secret garden. It's just like kids back when adults didn't want to deal with them and weren't worried about yeah. stalkers or kidnappers or anything. They just set it, them it's loose. Like the, yeah. It's like the whole uh, summer vacation thing. Yeah. That is always like, so blatantly yeah, put the, the, it all the start the, of all these dang stories. There was a line like, where the dad I get it. Yeah, there was a line in this where the dad said, "I don't want you going out there with your friends making these movies." And I just said, "Yeah, it's got to be about forty years until Call of Duty is made. So this is what we're doing in the meantime. This is what I've got." It's like I don't want you going out there with your friends and filming these movies and wasting your time. It's like, are you gonna stop him? <laughs> Are you going to tell him he, not he to? He really doesn't. Like, he gives lip service Because you seem mostly him. checked out at this point, mate. I, I think it's so interesting because it's clear that something in Joe's dad has broken since the yeah. death of his wife. And he's trying to set some ground rules. He's trying to be like, you're going to go to this academy thing or this camp or whatever, and you're going to have fun because I had fun. He's trying to have some kind of a rapport, but it's not working. And He doesn't know how he, to relate. Exactly. And even when he does try to set a ground rule, like, you're not going to see that Daynard girl again because her father's a fucking selfish son of a bitch. That's the one part I will say that I feel like the movie draws back a little. Because you're mm -hmm. left to imply for so long that he is actually responsible for making a a mistake on the job that yeah. directly killed the mother. But then yeah. you later, it's pulled back on a bit where he had just gotten drunk and didn't turn up to work, so she did Look, what he was supposed to have done that day. What what I took from that was not that it was pulling back, was that it was actually trying to say something about how uh, that character, the Kyle Chandler character was handling his grief. Yeah. He wants he wanted, someone to blame. He, he wanted to be angry. Yeah. He needed to be angry. He needed to blame Dana because... If he couldn't, if he didn't hear him say sorry, he could still look at this as somebody's fault this, rather than the tragic yeah. accident that it was. And when he hears Daynard say sorry, he is forced to accept that. And this is something that I find really interesting in fiction because I think it's something that is often, I wouldn't say ignored, but not spotlighted as much as I think it should be. We get so many examples in fiction of a child having lost a parent and how... Mm that affects a childhood. Because that, obviously that's like a very rich vein of character development, thematic yeah. material. Um, and it's, it's, it's a, meaty. Like, yeah, it's an immediate in with the audience as well in terms of emotional stakes. But something that I've always found very interesting that never gets as much play 
is what the what the remaining parent does. Yeah, you know, yeah, because that's as much of a world changing, life changing experience as it is for the kid. Yeah, in some ways, they lost a partner. Yeah, but not only that, but in in other ways, it's harder. It's or harder in a different way, in the sense that you've got to sort of arrest your own reaction to it for the benefit of taking care of yeah. your children. Yeah. And the ways in which adult characters struggle with that in stories like this. And I mean, are, you see it in the black They're of great well. interest to me as I, as yeah. I get older. Yeah. You well, see it's it in not the... forgotten yeah. here. Yeah. And that's, that's a really, really nice touch that Abrams didn't forget because we get a lot of the Kyle Chandler character. He's also doing his own independent sort yeah, of investigation he's, to all he's of these kind things. Of, he's and a like, few steps during that argument, Like, during that argument he has with Joe, he's like, I have all these people who count on me. It used to be someone else, but now it's just me. Yeah, and then you just see in Joe's eyes that it's like, and who am I? Well, you see in both of their eyes as they realize simultaneously pretty much the double meaning to that statement. Yeah. yeah. Um, I will and say also the that- fact that the kid is yeah. When Joe responds, he's like, "Well, you you're not really here, are you? You're not being a father and all of this stuff." It's a very even argument, and both of them leave that con- confrontation hurting in I will say ways. That's one of my major criticisms of the movie is that I don't think the character of Jack is as fleshed out as it should be. Um, yeah. I think that that's the part where the mimicry that J.J. Abrams wants to pursue gets in the way of actually telling the story. That he's, I mean, that whole father-son relationship, shake on on the rocks kind of relationship thing, is something that's very Spielbergian. And um, yeah. in the pursuit of that, I I think that it's actually it's not given the dimension that I would have wanted it to have. I mean, in the yeah. end, Jack doesn't really have much of a learning experience. I mean, he an unconstitutional detainment by the US military followed briefly thereafter by seeing an alien is all that he needs to get his life together. <laughs> like, there's not much else that is there that, like, other than the fact that they both went through, like, a holy shit, there's an alien thing. Yeah. Not much has changed. Like, they've not really done any work on their relationship. No. But they're I gonna mean, have to do some talking. To be fair, though, seeing an alien iron giant itself into the sky is—I don't know—I think that brings people together. Can I blow your it mind puts shit here? In perspective. Do you know who played the alien on the set? Bruce Greenwood. Yep. <laughs> Our guy Bruce Greenwood played the <laughs> Can alien. Can we have that cut of this movie? And. I see, like, obviously there's the J.J. Abrams connection. He played the captain in the first J.J. Abrams Star Trek movie, came back for the sequel in a, in a supporting role. But what a bizarre, like, it kind of reminds me of that movie A Monster Calls, which is this, again, yep. it's about a kid losing a parent. But that was just like Tom Holland doing a favor for the director who cast him in The Impossible. So he came in to play the monster in mocap. Um, <laughs> like, what is because I was like, looking... and it's not even the thing where you're like, you look at the creature's movements and you're like, that's that's a Greenwood special. <laughs> it's I like, just... no, it sort of like grabs onto walls and is sort of just looking at this it's kid. Like, as I... far as I can tell, Greenwood doesn't move like that. I would. He doesn't have four arms. 
I would adore behind the scenes footage of him running around on all fours. Like oh it's just God, not a Bruce. So good. It's not a Bruce Greenwood thing. Like that's no. a thing. I can picture Tom Holland acting out of the monster in monster calls. I can't picture Bruce Greenwood doing it. No. It's like how I desperately want that cut of Call of the Wild before they put all of the uh, the CG in, where it's just Harrison Ford and a guy on all fours that he's patting the head off. Like. <laughs> <laughs> we we desperately need all of these stand-in cuts, like the guy in uh, Cocaine Bear. Yeah. Yeah. It was so good. But, but like it, it is- I was looking through yeah. the uh, through the cast list at the end because I didn't know it was Bruce Greenwood and he's just got this cast that the name Cooper because that was the name that they called the alien on set. And I was like, did I miss Bruce Greenwood in here? And I was like, because it's all in like, who order. Who the hell is Cooper? Yeah, it's all in order of appearance. And I tracked tracked it down, and I was like, okay, so he's supposed to have turned up directly after the kid at the uh, the gas station. It's probably the first time the monster appears on screen. Um, <laughs> and I went back and looked, and he wasn't there. I was like, okay, so did they, like, cut a scene? Does Bruce Greenwood get mm. left on the cutting room floor and he just still has a credit? But no, I would I would very much like to see that uh, that um, footage. Mm. Um, um, also, they use the era that it's set very well. They do. I think, like, because uh, it's mostly set dressing, if I'm going to be completely honest. Uh, it gets us using the Super 8 cameras. It gives us... One of the great magic tricks of the movie, which is the delay on being able to review that footage. Yeah. And it also has the, um, like, it just creates a relationship to the time that mm. the movies it's taking the inspiration from are from. Because, yeah. like, that, that like, three-day delay is brilliant. Yeah. And because it's, it's not just it, that, it though. It paces it out so wonderfully. It's not just that, though. It's it's something that I think is overlooked in terms of how much it has changed the way we tell stories, especially the way we tell these kinds of stories with kids mm. and people who don't have their own agency of being able to drive a car or things like that. Um, the phones, the lack of phones, the mm. lack of texting, the lack of email, the lack of the internet, like, it isolates them and, you know... If they want to talk to each other, they got to actually go to that location, the same location, mm. and, and talk there. It's it's one of those things where if you look at, like, stories that were made in the 70s or 80s, and you look at even stuff like Buffy the Vampire Slayer or those teen shows from the 90s, how much of the plot would just be erased if they had the opportunity to text each other? <laughs> mm. Oh, absolutely. I do think it's it's... It is interesting that it has to go back to sort of that analog kind of feeling, and you get that with the little movie that the kids are making, that it's this zombie flick in the vein of a Romero, and they even uh, have that little reference to the Romero chemical plant. And mm. it's this really dodgy little noir piece <laughs> with shoddy acting and actually pretty decent effects, all things considered. Oh, those kids are definitely going to win that film festival. Oh, yeah, now. Now that they've got some footage, at least, of a train derailing. No, they don't actually... They can't actually use that. They use the models in the final product. Because I guarantee that that footage is getting requisitioned by the army. Okay, see, I have a problem, and it's not a problem with the movie itself, but the people in it. If you are the government, right, don't act suspicious... Treat it like it's not really a big deal. 
But that's what they are around, doing. That's what they are I'm, doing until the big monster starts going around eating people. I'm just saying, when you <laughs> walk no, around with around Geiger and counters... being and suspicious. Te- what I'm saying is, when you walk around with Geiger counters that are beeping everywhere, that's going to put people off. But you got to do that work, Harley. Like, you can't just that. not do it. How do you not make that suspicious? Like, they're doing what they can. My guy, Colonel Nellick, um, he's just trying to do his job. <laughs> I don't Psycho. know. He, he, he you're gets legitimately cruel, Lawson. And I'm being facetious. I know, but he says the coldest thing yeah. you could possibly say to someone when you know that you're about to kill them, which was something like, it's okay, we'll take care of you. I do, I, I think that the military guys needed a lot more development. Yeah. I would have yeah. liked to. And I, I mean, re- the military guys... The kids are filming a scene for their movie in front of all of these military blokes packing things into a truck. Like, if well, you're one of those point, soldiers, do you not go to your superior officer and be like, hey, uh, you're cool with this, right? Nah, the army guys are probably just like, ah, just let them do it. Who gives a shit? <laughs> I remembered... I haven't seen this movie since the cinema, so it's been 12 years. Um, I remembered Nellick as being a much bigger part of the movie than he is. Mm. Mm. And I think that's mainly because I've noticed Noah Emmerich a whole lot more in the years since, mm. but also because I remember his death scene so clearly because I thought that was so cool, the way it's shot with the but from behind the glass with the creature lunging and yeah. then the brief bit of mm. blood spray. But Nelik, I think, needed more development because I like what's there. I like that he yeah. is a true believer. Like, There's not really anything malicious in what he's doing. Not really. He just thinks of it as what needs to be done. He I, is doing it for the greater good. Yeah. TM. But, but I like I like that at the end there, he actually is trying to free the kids. Yeah. Uh, like he's asking for the key. He's gonna let them out because like he's not he's he's not a he good guy. He doesn't want them not, to be killed by the he's alien. He's not a psychopath. He's not gonna leave them around to be eaten by an alien. Um He just doesn't care for the alien is all. Yeah. Um and and that's some of the stuff that I think is is you know I could have done used more of that I could especially use mm. more of him and Jack because I think that would have been a good way mm. to illustrate mm. a lot more about both of those characters if we had spent some more time with them. Also, the kids keep calling the teacher old man Woodward. He's, He's not, not old. that old. Yeah, I mean, Glenn- <laughs> He's not that old. It's like old man Woodward. He's like He's fifty. He's old in spirit. Oh yeah, um, well, but he's yeah, also like, he's also like the not way he 50. points the gun at them and is like, "Hey, hey, you naughty children, get off my destroyed train." He's also not fifty. He's like in his mid sixties no. at the time that he made this movie. He just looks incredible. <laughs> yeah, well, like I I do like the fact that he's their science teacher and he just like has a creepy trailer out in. The- <laughs> Out in the car park, where he puts that he like has all of his alien research. Yeah, I yeah do but it's also, also like where he puts like the fireworks and stuff that he yeah that he confiscates. That kid needs those fireworks taken away from him. Oh, he rolls that shit himself. When he when he pulled the gun on them and he was like, "Don't tell anyone what you've seen here today." It's like motherfucker, we've seen nothing. We saw a train get derailed. It's going to be pretty hard to lie about that. But he knows that. That's enough yeah. for Nellick. He knows that yeah. Nellick, that will make them a target for Nellick. Mm. So he's actually doing yeah. it to protect them. Oh, um, yeah, of course. Like, he's a real one. I yeah. want to know more about Woodward. Like, that's that's like a really cool, interesting, like this guy who used to work for uh, 
the government investigating this alien, but then like mind melded with the alien and came to mm. sympathize with it, got dismissed and then spent like the next several years plotting to help the alien jailbreak out of there. Like, and that's his a plan cool character. is ram face first into a train. Oh, hey, whatever yeah. works. Sacrifice his life for his alien bro. Yeah. Like, He's a real one. He's right or die. <laughs> and I appreciate how like, in the you meantime... You've got to respect the balls on the guy. To, in the meantime, to pay the bills and to put food on the table, he is not only a science teacher, but he's building up this image of himself as crotchety old Mr. Woodward. Dr. Woodward. He, yes. He... Because he's, some respect he's on the name. so he's overqualified to be a science teacher in a small town. Oh, yeah. Like, he says some really ice-cold shit to the military guy, like, I'm going to die, but when he kills you, I'm going to be there to watch. It's like, Jesus Christ, Woodward. <laughs> Damn, man. Let's talk a bit about, uh, about the kids. Mm. Um. Because I actually oh, I think... did, did just want to mention one thing about the alien. I love the moment where when the alien picks up Joe and sort of does the mind meld with him, those lids over its eyes open and you just see these very human looking eyes looking back at Joe. Well, and I they're think supposed that's a really to be great detail. It's connecting. They're supposed yeah. to be the eyes of his mother, I think. Hmm. I think that's the idea is that um like, if I remember reading it correctly, like, they specifically designed them to look like his mother's eyes from the flashbacks. Because what the alien does with the mind meld is he doesn't just see what's at the forefront. He understands you fundamentally after he touches you. And the only reason that he's killing people or taking people is, one, to protect his own anonymity, or two, go home. He's angry for the treatment that he's received. And the way that Joe just tells him it's going to be okay, sometimes bad things happen. The mother, by the way, in those flashbacks, played by uh, Catriona Balfe, who yeah. is the female lead of Outlander yeah. and uh, yeah. has been. She's awesome. Was in Belfast as the mother in Belfast. Um, so the kids, I think it's a really good collection of child actors, but I think. Obviously, the standout here is Elle Fanning. Yeah. Um. She. Yeah. This was her first role. Uh. Dakota had been in the in the spotlight up until then. This was Elle's first time at bat. Yeah. Um. And I spent the whole movie thinking she seems so much older than the rest of them. Mm. Um. But she's actually two years younger than all of them. Mm. It's just that she's acting rings around all of them. <laughs> that she seems so much more confident yeah. and so much more of a presence. I suppose. Like, what, was, she, what was the part she, that? You were talking she about yesterday. She shows it off from the bit in on the train station when they do the dry run. It's like it's like okay, Alice, you don't need to go the full way, so just give me it clean. But even then, she acts the shit out of it. Even when like, she even when she rocks up in the car, yeah, and she like chews them out for not mentioning that the deputy's kid's gonna be there. Mm. Um, like that's like like it's my scene now. Like, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, it's almost as if she looks at Joe right and is away. like, he's going to snitch? Of course he's going to snitch. I know a snitch when I see one. He's one. Um, but there are two other actors in the cast who have gone on to uh, to bigger things. Or I won't say bigger things, continuing things. Um, 
Joel Courtney, who plays the lead, is one of the uh, the love interests in the um, Kissing Booth trilogy on Netflix, opposite Joey King. Uh, he was also in The Empty Man, our yeah. yes. our favourite. But then the one that really blew my mind is the the bookish the guy that's the actor in the the movie, the sort of bookish kind of nerdy, unexceptional person they keep making fun of. He is the main character of that Netflix show, The Night Agent. So if you've seen the posters of like that really buff Chris Hemsworth looker guy running around doing like political thrillery things, that's him. That's Gabriel Basso. Oh shit, it is. God damn. But like comparing uh comparing the character he you plays are right. in this. He looks bizarrely like a Hemsworth. Like if you had to He's draw so a Hemsworth by Hemsworth. memory. <laughs> <laughs> that is Hemsworth by memory, yeah. I also have recognized Ryan Lee who played Carrie. He was uh the he was champ in the Goosebumps movie. Yes, yes he was. And he was very funny in that. I that love movie those is Goosebumps. so good. I love that first Goosebumps movie. We need to watch the sequel at some point. Yeah. It's not as um, good, but it's not terrible. Um, and the the guy the, plays the Charles. Jo- I just want to pause for a second. The joke that always gets me from that first Goosebumps movie, because it's a movie that really doesn't have any chill. Can I just guess? Because I I want to know <laughs> if you latched onto the same thing I did. Because you this came out before we met each other. Yeah. Is it the? Let me tell you something about Steve King. Not yeah, that's <laughs> I do love that's that. excellent. <laughs> no doubt in my mind. But it's the part where. The cops go to R.L. Stein's house, R.L. Stein played by Jack Black, and they're talking about how a scream scream was heard by the neighbours. And he's like, it's my hi-fi system. I didn't know being an audiophile was a crime. (laughs) And the the cop pulls his gun and is like, a what? And the other cop is like, a conveyor of high-end audio audio equipment. equipment. That movie is so much better than it had any right to be. Yeah, like, I know. It, it does not pull any punches. Like, hmm. that joke in particular, we were in the cinema when we watched that, and I was like, Oh, damn. Uh, okay. Didn't expect that joke to get through. Like, and I also didn't ex- anticipate in the first scene for them to actually say, dead. That, no, you, that you don't expect was it from dead, that, and that kind it of was, movie. Not past or gone, but dead. Like, a lot of movies for the younger crowds, it's changing now, which is great, but a lot of movies for younger crowds, they don't, they're not as blunt as that. Mm. Yeah, they skirt that word. Um, and yeah. coming back, back to, to Code 8, 8 yeah. uh, not Code 8, coming back to Super 8. Code this 8 movie is, is, I believe, the name of a uh, yes. Stephen Amell movie, is that correct? Both I think so, Stephen yes. and... And Robbie. Stephen yes. and Robbie are in that yes. one. Uh, as I was saying... Back to... Not Sense8 either. Why was I about to say that? Lots of things ending with 8. Back to Super 8. Uh, this movie is not afraid to say that kind of thing. Mm. And my my absolute favourite scene in this movie is when Alice sneaks into Joe's room and Joe's been watching the Super 8 footage that his father took of baby Joe and his mother. And he's been watching this and... You get that beautiful scene where Alice is sitting a little bit in front of him and you get the sort of the reflection off of the screen mm. um, that's being projected onto, showing on her face. And the way she starts the sentence is, 
he drank that morning. Like, it's not perfect. It's not clean. It's it's almost choked out, the line. It's not grammatically sound, but it's so emotionally raw. And the way that Ellie, Fa- Ellie Fanning just breaks down yeah. in that scene, it's just, it's beautiful work. Yeah. Yeah. I it's gotta just say, outstanding stuff. I gotta say that, you know, when I watched the movie the first time in the cinema, um, I, I wasn't there for the coming of age stuff. I yeah, was there yeah. to see a monster eat people, and I got what I wanted. But yeah. um, watching it now, having I think you know a greater a greater wish for character depth and development and that kind of thing than I did at the age of seventeen, um, the coming of age stuff works so well, and it gives oh, the movie yeah. such a spine and a heart in a way that you know it, it is what makes it. It's the engine, really. Oh yeah, and. That scene just really hit me, because it's it's slow, it's simple, it's a two-hander. Um, and look, Ellie Fanning is running rings around the majority of the young cast here. Joel Courtney's no slouch here. No, though. no, he's good. Like he's he's putting the work in. And he's I mean, doing a damn re- good job. And the relationship built between the characters it feels so real. It it has that feeling of one of those summertime crushes. Like, Mm. how adorable they are around each other when he's teaching her how to be a zombie. How she kisses him on the neck and giggles. It's like, all of these little things that are just sweet and adorable, but not in a overwhelming way. It Mm. feels real. It feels like... It feels like the perfect crystallization of... and, And, sorry... It feels like the crystallization of an edgier Spielberg picture, where it has these elements of the saccharine and the sweet, particularly that final sequence where the alien gets to return to his home planet, but it does have that edge. There's the blood, there's the fact that there are two people down in that catacomb underneath the town who... If they're not dead, definitely do need some medical it's assistance. Not, it's not two people. It's literally everyone that got caught mm. is no longer there except El Fanning. Mm. Like, I yeah. think he ate them all. <laughs> no, like well, When the, you're uh, working day and the, night, you need to keep up your blood sugar. Like, and they do that fake out with the dogs. Yeah. yeah as the well. The dogs have like, sense that something the dogs is a sport. dipped. Yeah. They bounced. Because <laughs> they got the sense for it. They just left. Um, but yeah, I, also, like, I don't know whether it. I'm being just unkind to Spielberg, but it is the thing that I run up with against him so much is that he's such a fantastic director and such a fantastic storyteller, but I so often find what I want out of a movie and what he wants out of a movie to be at opposition with each other yeah. in a lot of his, his stuff. Like, I really push back against saccharine sweet. Like, it's the same thing as, like, saying I don't like it when I feel pandered to. I don't like it when I feel like you're patting me on the head and telling me something because you think it'll be too challenging if you tell me something yeah. different. You're not um, a schmaltzy guy. Not really. Like, I'm, I I like sentiment. I like nostalgia. Mm. I like all that stuff. I mean, I'm a big Mamma Mia guy. But, <laughs> like, there's just something overly safe about some of Spielberg's yeah. stuff, yeah, and I think it, it's the difference between you know a marshmallow and well, a nice pina colada. Yeah, we They're spoke about different it. Edges of sweet, but 
But there's we spoke about it back in War of the Worlds, right? Yeah, that, well, that that's my favorite. The kid Spielberg should have died. Movie. Yeah, that's... the kid should have never been seen again. Yeah, that's my favorite Spielberg movie, and he can't help but fumble the ending. To be completely fair, though, we are particularly bloodthirsty when it comes <laughs> to horror movies where kids are there. Like, um, are we? It, I I think of... it's just a thing that I've noticed that. We, we don't like them taking the safe we route. We don't like and the safe route. Everyone's we, safe. We like to be shocked by a movie, and it would have been shocking if the kid, if that, if the brother never made it back. Like, I don't think it would have been. I think it would have just made sense. But anyway, we're just relitigating War of the Worlds at this point. Yeah. But I think that you know Spielberg has two modes, right? He has the the ET mode, and then he has serious adult drama mode, yeah. and. I feel like there's something in between, which is where I mm. sit. That like I like serious adult drama mode, but I I think that the a lot of the stuff that he does should be somewhere in between as well. Like um the the saccharine schmaltzy stuff can yeah. sit in the middle. I think the Indiana Jones stuff walks that line really well. Yeah, but yeah. so often he <laughs> can the, just yeah it's become the a parody be- of himself almost. Yeah. It's the difference between Jaws and Harry and the Hendersons. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess. Um, you know, any movie. So, I, what I'm sort of getting is any movie where you could reasonably expect Joe Crocker's "Love Lives On" in the ending credits <laughs> sequence is something that you sort of push back against. Yeah, yeah, and I could imagine <laughs> that in a lot, a, Spielberg, a lot of Steven Spielberg, a lot of Steven Spielberg movies. Because I mean, I'm just looking through his. Through his uh, filmography, you know, there's like Hook is a good example of this. I push back on Hook a lot, um, but yeah, it's it's just something that I feel like he has rightfully gotten some criticism for. I think he's moved away from it for quite a while now. I don't think that's elicited a reaction from me from any of his work for at least a decade. But um, have you seen the BFG? I have, yeah, but that's that's fairly close to the the source material yeah. I found, at least from memory. I'd have to watch it again, and I don't really want See, to. See, it's interesting because what I, I'm seeing a few movies here that feel like they'd be more Bob Zemeckis joints, like The Adventures of Tintin, or as I said, the BFG. They just feel more like Zemeckis's vibe, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, well, I could see that for Tintin more than the BFG. I think the BFG is fairly Spielberg-y. But. Um, I also want to say, very confident directing from Abrams. Yeah. yeah. Like, He's a good director. Really, really he strong. Is. And Larry Fong like, is the cinematographer, and he the movie looks this great. very well. Um, like we said, that train accident, it's holy spectacular. shit. It, if there weren't some There's particularly- like train cars flying through the sky and- yeah, spoilers, it's going to be my favourite sequence in the movie, because holy shit, it's a miracle that none of those kids died. Like, And it's a it's miracle even that more of a the miracle camera that was Woodward, retrievable. Woodward is sitting in, like, the top left-hand corner of the car. Yes, because the car got absolutely un- shattered. Un- undestroyed. Yeah. Um... I think the CG's held up really well as well. Yeah, it yeah. has. I mean, we yeah, talked and, a little bit about yeah. the design. I think you talked about the design, John, of uh, of the monster and how he's kind of Cloverfieldy. Well, that was that was a rumor for a long time before this movie came out. Was that this was a stealth Cloverfield sequel or a prequel or something? 
Hmm. And of course, it ended up not to, not being. But you can definitely see the DNA. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. The moment I saw the creature, I was like, "Fuck! It's a clover field." <laughs> Shit. Um, I think we are reaching the end of our conversation here. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, is there anything either of you would like to add? Um. um also. Props to the guy from the photo development store. He kept like, he helping came in the clutch. kids out. He comes in real clutch. I don't know. Then he gets high and lets them drive the car. Yeah, true. That's true. But the kids managed it's to make the it. Se- it's the late 70s. Kids were doing all sorts of things back then. Um. Well, now why don't we move on to our IMDb parents guide segment for the uninitiated. This is the part of the podcast where we talk about the prudish and or pervy sequences in the IMDb Parents Guide for the movie of the week. Um, that's not really a, uh, a appropriate description for the entries this week, though. It's two entries in the frightening and intense sequences section. Frightening scenes involving abnormal or absent physical laws are frequent. What? <laughs> Look, I can see why the destruction of physics and science could be upsetting for some people. Okay, the dissolution of gravity is present. I wouldn't call it a scary element. A child is shown vomiting. Okay, that kid does vomit quite a lot, and I feel like I'd be him in that scenario. Yeah. I get anxiety, and that's the port of call it goes to. I'd be one of the dogs that ran away. (laughs) (laughs) You'd be out. You get a bad vibe, it's like... The train crashes, it's like... I've seen white noise, and I want no part of this. I'm out. <laughs> I'm going to be out of town for the summer. Check it. Peace. Imagine you're out of town and you come back, and the military <laughs> set up a presence. All of the dogs have disappeared, and then all of a sudden, all of these tanks and shit just start going off. You're going back to the lake after that. Mm. All right, now why don't we move on to say who our MVP for this movie is? Oh, the Muppets. Our- Oh yes, our recast of the uh, the movie with the Muppets cast for the Muppet version of Super Eight. Um, I have have fairly clear thoughts on this, and I'd like uh, I'd like to offer them. Um, so the human characters, you keep the human actors for uh, Josh and for Alice. Kermit would play the dad. Um, yep. Miss Piggy, would, of course, play the mother in the flashbacks and in the video. Uh, Sam the Eagle as Colonel Nellick. Um, Naturally. Fozzie as Charles. Uh, yeah, he is kind director. of the second stringer. Uh, Gonzo as the, the mad kid trying to blow stuff up. Yeah. yeah uh, that and that's about it. That's where I, I reached the end there. But Because um, Preston, bless him, doesn't really have much of a defining characteristic. No, uh, He's I've the guy asked... who... He fills out the space. I've asked ChatGPT to who should play certain characters. It has Beaker as Dr. Woodward, which leads to the very funny image of Beaker driving a car into the path of an (laughs) oncoming train. I agree with Harley. It has to be Bunsen. It has to be Bunsen, yeah. It'd be... Okay, it's shared by both. It, for some reason, has the Swedish chef... You can't keep Bunsen and Beaker apart. It has the Swedish chef as Joe's father. Yeah, this technology is really not there yet. No, it's not. <laughs> um, you have Uncle Deadly as the monster. Uh, yeah, to be it's, fair, we did the... have Sweetums as the monster last week. But Sweetums also doesn't have, like, you couldn't imagine Sweetums, like, climbing around the ceiling and things. You can't imagine <laughs> Uncle Deadly doing that. Isn't Uncle a Deadly giant can't. Uncle... 
It would have to be a giant Uncle Deadly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was like... No, no, no. I've changed my mind. Big Bird. <laughs> yes. You, you, you know that... that because, but, as per the rules, we can dip we can into... We can use Sesame Street characters. Sesame Street. So, Elmo for Joe, Abby Kadabby as Alice. Nah, you want, you want Joe and Alice yeah, to still fair, be human. Fair point. But we, I do love when, the... You, you know that picture that... I think it's a video or a gif of Big Bird kicking someone's door in and just standing in the <laughs> in the doorway. I understand why Big Bird is your choice there. Yeah. Can't wait for the last voyage of the Demeter with the Count as Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> Von Cabin Boy. Two, Two Cabin, cabin Boy. boy. Three uh, Cabin uh, Boy. Ah, ah, ah. Uh. 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 So now why don't we move on to say who our MVP is for this movie, what our favourite scene or sequence is, and of course, who we would recast with this podcast's patron saint, character actor John Lithgow. Knock, knock, who's there? (laughs) I will start us off and I will say that my MVP for this movie is Elle Fanning. Uh, I think that she gives a real, like, star-making turn and I think you have... No need to look for proof for that beyond her own filmography. Like, this was her first movie, and she has since done some really exceptional work, continues to do it, has, you know, there can only be one fanning sister uh, at the height of Hollywood, much like the Highlander, and uh, she has assumed that role. Consumes Um, the power of the others. Yeah. Uh, She's really good here. She, I I keep coming back to the fact that I thought she was older than the others just because she seems so much more self-assured, but she's actually younger. She's just a very good actress, and she gives that character, which is a complicated character with a complicated emotional journey, especially for a uh, um, child to portray. Mm. She does it well, and uh, so I'm going to give it to her. In terms of my favourite scene or sequence, it's got to be the attack on the military convoy at the end, which concludes with... Colonel Nellick getting his head bitten off. Um, <laughs> that's I, I really like that scene because I think it's a great... For, for starters, it's a moment of catharsis because we're seeing Nellick get it. But I think it's a great sort of like beat for the character of Nellick. It gives him a bit of depth. He tries to save the kids. Um, but it's, it, it's, it's a real fun action sequence. Uh, and it's also very well staged in terms of the horror element of it, in terms of this creature just sort of picking them off one by one before getting in there. Um, it's, it's kind of the stuff that I really like about this movie in uh, Microcosm. I think it really lands. So I'm going to go with that one. In terms of who I would recast with this podcast, Patron Saint, character actor John Lithgow, I thought about it. I thought about Jack, but I decided it wasn't a neat enough fit I thought about Dr. Woodward, obviously, but he would have been in so little. And so I am landing on the character of Colonel Nellick because I think that he could do very well as sort of this ruthless, cold-blooded military veteran who uh, is just locking this town down and will do whatever he has to do to get that alien (coughs) under his control again. I think he would be uh, a great presence. I like me some Noah Emmerich, but like having an actor of John Lithgow's stature as that character would also automatically bring some authority and gravitas to him. Um, and uh, I think he would he would be a lot of fun in the role. So I'm going mm. with that one. Uh, for me, my MVP has to be Elle Fanning. 
she's acting rings around not only kid actors, to be fair, the kid actors are pulling their weight, but also running rings around some of the adult actors too. Confidence, self-assuredness, and the ability to pay the ability to play that weariness at the heart of Alice's character. And it's all wrapped up in that scene that I was talking about earlier, the way that she admits to herself she preferred if it were her father who died in the accident is some heartbreaking shit. Um, but she has great chemistry with everyone else on set, and she's gone on to do some wonderful, wonderful things as an actor. Uh, and it all starts here. Just really impressive work. Uh, my favorite scene or sequence, it's that scene with the projector, where Joe's watching the old, old home movies, and Alice comes in to talk to him. It's just... It's simple. It's straightforward. It is Elle Fanning acting the shit out of the dialogue that she's got, and, you know, Joel Courtney is no slouch there either. He's able to keep pace with her, even though she is the more talented performer, and that's the real heart of the movie. It's about grief. It's about not lashing out at the world for treating you poorly, but seeking something else in place of that. And that's the message that, you know, Joe brings to the alien at the end. It's a, it's the idea of mercy, taking mercy on those who wrong us. Albeit, in the case of the alien, there was a lot more malicious intent uh, from the military. But it's all wrapped up there, and it's some great coming-of-age stuff, too. Um, for John Lithgow, sorry, Kyle. I like it when you show up and stuff. You're pretty underrated, I do think, but... The role of Jack is going to John Lithgow for me. Um, mainly because we get more Lithgow here in this particular role. And it's that, it's got that complexity that Lithgow can play really well. He's been known to play like really, you know, caring fathers in the past in certain roles. But now he's got to play a character who's detached from that. He's trying, but he's still detached. And... Lithgow can play the authority, but Lithgow can also play the fact that uh, Jack is in over his head, taking on all of these responsibilities, probably in an attempt to avoid the responsibilities he has to perform at home, because that's part of Jack's complicated grief. And there's just a lot of meaty stuff for Lithgow to pull out of it. That, sorry Kyle Chandler, I don't think Chandler was going to be able to do given the direction he got. But when you get John Lithgow, Lithgow's going to put in the work to really dig deep into it. I don't think it's going to be controversial among us that we prefer John Lithgow over Kyle Chandler. No. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, I'll give it to Elle Fanning, because she's doing a performance beyond her years. She's assured, she's confident, and she's, again, acting rings around a lot of her co-stars. And... It's very clear why she's gone on to bigger and better things, while everyone else is just sort of stuck to the same general level. For my favorite scene or sequence, it's the train crash. It is just spectacular. Sometimes I like a good, deep character moment, but sometimes I just want to see some shit blow up in a really exciting way. And this does that. It's not really just one crash, it's multiple crashes. As Things are thrown skyward, and it's just very enjoyable to watch. And for whoever get John Lithgow to play, I agree with Lawson. 
uh, it's General Nelek. Because him coming in, he could have this very cold, shark-like demeanor where it only really breaks when he gives his life to save the kids. And I think it's the kind of character that Lithgow can really pull, pull off. And it can make it seem like he's this real higher up in the military who's been sent to deal with, you know, a big deal for Homeland Security, which is an alien that they've been torturing on the reg for, like, seven years? Getting out? Seems like the kind of deal that you send John Lithgow into sort. Alright, so now we're going to put it to a vote. Whether or not we are a pro Super 8 podcast or not. Lawson, why don't you cast your vote first? I'm saying yes. I think this is a very strong movie. Uh, it is a really great sort of time capsule of the period that it's depicting, and it conjures that same sort of, you know, adventurous element of all of the great pieces of fiction that I really enjoyed as a as a young person. Uh, I think that it's very effective from a technical perspective. It's got good acting. Uh, and I really enjoy the... Spielberg with the sharp edges intact vibe mm. that it's got going for it. So I'm going to say yes. I maintain that for me, this is the movie I want to see out of Super 8 and E.T. <laughs> so I'm going to say yes. I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. Like Lawson said, it's Spielberg with the sharp edges kept. It's E.T. with an exclamation mark instead of a full stop. It is some really great fundamental filmmaking from J.J. Abrams. People don't remark enough at how truly solid J.J. Abrams is. People get into all those discussions about, like, oh, the puzzle box, oh, the lens flare. But no, he's a very, very confident hand, and he doesn't waste his time. Obviously, Rise of Skywalker is a bit of an exception, because, you know, of the rush, rush job it was. But... This is some great work from everyone involved. It holds up, and John McKinnon Miller is here. Always nice to see him pop up. Yeah, I would give it <laughs> a pro vote, because it's just very well-made sci-fi. It touches on so many of those interesting elements from Spielberg's work, but it does have that bit of a sharper edge to it. The performances are generally just really good, and then when you've got Elle Fanning, it's great. The design for the creature is very well done. The reason why the creature is doing what it's doing is very understandable and very compelling. And it's just a genuinely well-put-together film that has a lot in common with things that I've enjoyed in the past, which is kid-centric sci-fi that has an edge and doesn't try to soften blows. So that comes with stuff like Stranger Things. So this scratched that same edge. So I would suggest this movie to anyone who loves Stranger Things. Give Super 8 a go. It's the same general vibe. Also like to say, the great touch at the end of him letting go of the locket. Yeah. You know, it's symbolism 101, but it's effective nonetheless. I probably would have liked grabbed another piece of metal off the ground and just thrown that up to it, but, you know. No, I, it was I a necessary thing. Um, so, if you would like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at Exit Do the Candy Can for John, my son, on the bright side. You can also reach us through our Twitter. Yes, I'm still calling it Twitter. Which is the best place to give us episode-specific feedback and movie recommendations. What do you think about Super 8? 
What are your favorite movies that use Super 8 footage? I would have to say Black Phone uh, is up there for me. They use all cameras of that time to get those uh, four three shots, and it's brilliant stuff. It's a forgotten technology that has the retro feel to it. Uh, what is your favorite J.J. Uh, Abrams movie, just in general? Um, you can also like, rate, comment, and subscribe on your podcast app of on your podcast app of choice. Just keep in mind on certain podcast apps, you are commenting on the show on the whole, and on others, it is for specific episodes. Uh, when you are commenting on ones that are on the whole, just cite the episode you're referring to, uh, so we can understand what you're talking about, address it if we need to, that sort of thing. Uh, it's really for our own bookkeeping purposes at that point. Uh, you can also like, rate, comment, share, and subscribe, and please do do that. In the future, the Mega CDs aren't just themselves. They aren't isolated from other countries or cities around the world. There is a world-spanning uh, train network uh, with super-fast trains. Think bullet trains, but much larger, uh, going for longer trips across the planet. Yes, it is a Snowpiercer-type situation. Uh, not as brutal or class-based, but it is something to consider if you want to go to somewhere like Spain, for example, which is a lot colder than it used to be due to climate shit. The the robots have done what they can to arrest climate change, but it's a little uh, irreversible at this point. So, Lawson, what have we got cooking for next week? Well, next week we'll be doing a movie that I think that the two of you are going to get a real kick out of. Um, I, I Honestly, 50-50 if you've seen it before. It wouldn't surprise me if you had, but only because of who directed it. We will be talking about one of Mike Flanagan's early works, uh, his first go at a horror feature film with the 2011... Oculus. Pardon? Oculus? No, even earlier, the 2011 film Absentia. Um, <laughs> I've heard of it. If you would like to follow along at home... So you've not seen it? No. No, but I've heard great things about it. If you'd like to follow along at home, you can find it available in Australia for purchase or rental on the YouTube and Google Play stores. No iTunes. Nope. How about that? At least not according to justwatch.com. So join us next week for when we talk about Absentia. Until then, I have been Ollie Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been, and will continue to be Jean Lewis. (laughs) 